Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod, and of course we couldn't do it without the hardcore legend himself, Mr. Mick Foley. Mick, how are you, man? Doing great, Conrad. Still buzzing after our first episode. Man, I, I told uh, Dave Silva after the fact yesterday, that's our best first episode of any podcast we've ever done, and I can't wait to see what this looks and feels like in a few months, Dave. felt really natural. Yeah. So what I had to do, I had to resist the urge to do, when I when I was doing the, my, my one-man show, Originally, it was me trying to do stand-up comedy. Right. Trying to talk about topical things, points of view, and things like that. And I was doing pretty good. Of course, there was a little wrestling sprinkled in, but I was almost doing everything I could to avoid being a, avoid it being a wrestling show. Right. And you find out after years, well, that's why are you running against what people want you to do? You right. Know, the thing that's most likely to make them happy. But I realized when I was really working hard, I mean, I always had a notebook, always working on things, that I was watching the specials of other comics and unknowingly taking on little cadences that they had. And I was kind of losing what it was that made my point of view valuable to begin with. And and so I likened it to a baseball player named Willie Wilson who was technically not a fundamentally great ball player, but he played for the Royals. What he do is chop the ball on the turf, and he was so fast, like he was he was a player unlike any other player. Then when he learned all the fundamentals, he was no longer Willie Wilson. Right. And he was technically a better fundamental player, but he wasn't the guy he was, and he just became another guy. And I thought, man, I I had to resist the urge to listen to nothing but podcasts because then I run the risk of uh, losing whatever it is that made you interested in doing Foley's Pod to begin with. Well, come on now, dude. You've uh, you've had this storytelling <laughs> thing down for a while now. I mean, how long has it been since you wrote your first book? Was that 99? First book came out in 90, yeah, wrote it in 99, wrote it in the summer of 99, and uh, that opened up a lot of doors. Uh, the second one was published in May of 2001. That opened up doors to go to speak to colleges. Wow. Like, you know, uh, unsolicited, I was, well, I didn't solicit anyone. They came to me, would you like to speak to colleges? I didn't know I could. And they said that the two books made me a credible college speaker. And then and when that dried up in 2007, uh, there was a guy who asked me to try out stand up in either 2008, 2009. And then, like I said, it's been kind of a long road. But uh, I love what I do when I'm live on stage. And if people want to check that out when I'm coming to town, realmickfoley.com and hit events. Uh, as I do, I do get out there. And by the way, I've seen the show six times. Uh, it's better every time. All the shows are different. You do a lot of uh, Q&A and improv. And I saw you eat a brownie on stage, which <laughs> I've never seen at any comedy club ever. So check it out, realmickfoley.com. <laughs> Uh, let's get up uh, about our topic today. We're talking about the beginning of mankind. And what made me want to cover this last week is you told really a pretty interesting story about your time with Vader before you even got going with the mankind yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll just pick it up from there. But before we do, I want to mention you grew up in, as New York is sort of the home territory, if you will, of the World Wrestling Federation. And you would pretend to be a wrestler with your friends. And mm-hmm. I mean, you had really always dreamed of being not just a professional wrestler, but for the WWF, right? Yeah. The WWF was what I grew up on. Uh, as a matter of fact, for years, we did not get the uh, 
w, uh, WCW show when it was the NWA show, even when almost everyone else got it. For some reason in my county, uh, my cable system did not get it. So I wasn't even exposed to anything else. I think until 83 when Southwest Championship Wrestling showed up on USA wow. you know, for a short run. And then there was that one show that covered, it was a WWE show. This, people didn't know that Vince was intending to cherry pick the, the best talent and go national. But for a while it was like, wow, I get to see these guys from the different parts of the country that I've only read about in the Bill Apter magazines. And the George Napoleon, give George's props too. Sure. Right? George and Bill were the two guys, the two editors-in-chief. And... Um, so I yeah I was had my sights firmly set on W you know, WWF. So uh, just to add a frame of reference, I, I don't think a lot of our younger listeners know uh, what's the tie-in with maybe modern wrestling and Southwest. I mean, I don't think a lot of people know that's Tully Blanchard's dad, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, it sure was. It's just uh, such a small world to think even now here in 2022, Tully's on TV. Isn't that crazy? It's yeah, well, I saw him in '83. He was the Red Rocker. Yeah, TCB. Uh, there were some good guys there, and uh, but it was bloody. Just, uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling was pretty bloody, and that's something uh, that you only got on rare occasions in WWF. So, of course, everybody knows the story, you know, of Jimmy Snuka and Don Morocco and your love of that. But did you know before you went to that show that you wanted to be a professional wrestler, or was it at that <clears throat> show? I'd wanted to be a wrestler for a couple of years. So when I was ten or eleven. I wasn't necessarily dreaming of becoming a wrestler. I just knew that my brother and I loved wrestling, and we weren't particularly close. So to find something we both liked, and we were drawn to, like, the hokier moves, the uh, <laughs> that shot, the oblique chop. Like, I don't think I've seen an oblique chop before or since. Can't even remember who did it. It was one of these things where the guy stomping the feet, you know, while he chopped the obliques, and that became a mainstay in what we, we would do, and... We'd have matches. I think I, I told the story in 97 with Jim Ross where I backdropped my brother and he broke his nose. And uh, my mom came in and said, no more wrestling. But she didn't say, no more dreaming. There you and go. Said as mankind. Yeah, that was that was pretty significant. So for years, the WWF didn't really entertain bringing you in. And, and I think it's even been written about that um, – you made a, a pretty consistent effort there with J.J. Dillon and others. Uh, sort of run us through what that was like. I think the first time I uh, placed a call was when my parents received a message from Pat Patterson, who was, uh, he was high, I don't know if he's head of creative, but he was up there. Up there. I think Vince was always head of creative. And I get a call, and the first thing I said to my parents, because I'm, I got my feelers out there, I'm thinking, this is this is a rib. Right, because I was probably I was still a college student. I think I think it was twenty one years old, maybe maybe just turned twenty two. And um, but no, you was, knew that Pat was high up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Because okay. I'd been to a couple of shows, um, and I'd 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 done enhancement work. You know, I did four right. or five enhancement matches with Hercules, with the Bulldogs, Killer Bees, Kamala, and I think that I think that was it for me, as far as being uh, um, that guy uh, getting beaten up on TV. But I knew Pat. I could, I, you know, even before I, well, I knew what a Booker was by that time. But I would see him, either uh, congratulate or not reprimand in a constructive way. Talent when they came in, you know, Pat had a great eye and ear for that type of thing. Um, but the first thing I asked my parents, sensing a rib, was, did he, uh, did he mess up his plurals and singulars? Right? <laughs> you already knew that. <laughs> I already knew that. 
And my, my dad goes, oh, his English was terrible. And I said, like, oh, man, oh, great. That could okay. be real. got to be the right guy. So I called up probably three or four times. This is a Cactus Jack returning Pat Patterson's call. And I received no call, no 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 return call. And it was like three months later when Shane Douglas was like, hey, did you get my call? It's like, what call? He goes, yeah, I called your house, pretended to be Pat Patterson. Oh, man. Uh, and I, I called it the always funny rib of making someone feel like their dreams are coming true. You know? <laughs> but now if I'd listened to the message, if my parents had played me the message, I would have understood it was a rib. Because, Hello, this is his Pat Patterson's. It was Shane literally messing up every single word, yeah. every single in plural. So that was not in the cards. And then when I got to w- WCW... Uh, it was going good, but uh, I think by the time 92 rolled around, um, you, you know, um, I was still being used well, but I just wanted to see, but I wasn't being offered anything in the way of a race, you know, right. so there was still a world of difference between I, what I was making, which was still good, $150,000, 1991 was uh, pretty yeah, good. That's pretty good. Still, I argue it's still, still yeah. pretty good. Um but, you know, there was a big disparity between the guys I was working with and what they were making, what I was making. So I just want to see if I, you know, what the market had, you know, what the market bore. And I would be dismissed within a minute, I'd say. It was just a minute. Oh, you know, we're not currently looking for any talent. And then I've said in my shows, like, I would sit and watch Monday Night Raw. And I'd see the debut of people who I thought I may have been better than. Like, right. You know, talk about Mantar and, and and hokey, you know, bad gimmicks at that time. Really yeah. bad gimmicks. Kevin Nash said, uh, peop, they were a, pe- you were a thing. You were a job. Vocation. Occupational you gimmick. You were an occupation. You know, that was almost across the board. Or not almost across the board, but it was a big percentage of guys out there who were occupations. So when you were talking about in WCW and you felt like there was maybe some, some income disparity, if you yeah. will, uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall have always referred to what they called as sting money. And it was about the six hundred thousand range. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought that was the high water mark there. I thought Sting may have been making a little like seven in the seven hundreds. Yeah, but yeah, that was that was the big money. And there were other guys who were making three or four hundred. A little guy here, here and there making five hundred. And then when uh, Kevin and uh, Kevin and uh, Scott came in, and then Hogan, you know, that bar got pushed considerably yeah. higher. You know. And that's when our friend Barry Bloom came in, you know, with the favored nations clause. So if somebody else picked up more than that, you were automatically factored. I was never automatically factored. I was never part of that. But uh, that was good for everybody because that's what placed pressure on Vince to start offering the guaranteed contracts. Uh, I think the payoffs went up considerably. And so going back to what you and I were talking about last week, Ultimately, ultimately, whatever's good for the men and women in the business, I believe, is good for the business, including WWE. Yeah. No, I would agree. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, as a performer, you know, sure, everybody has goals that they want to achieve professionally and financially. But was it defeating when you realized, wait a minute, I'm in the same match as Sting and he's 5X? Is that the genesis (laughs) of the call? No, I think it was more creatively, uh, more, I think, going back. I can't pinpoint uh, the way I felt in September of 1992 or who I was working with. I was really grateful to uh, have the job I did. It was more the frustration of feeling, like I said, that uh, the carpet's going to be you know, pulled out from underneath me. 
Uh, I think a lot of guys have felt that, you know, where you especially in WCW in that era. In probably. WCW in that era, yeah, they had, they had kind of worked themselves into a situation. The conundrum they faced, or the talent faced, is that you couldn't make top money unless you were a top guy. So of course you're striving to be a top guy, but you couldn't be a top guy unless you were making top money. Yeah. So you know you'd have your run, but as far as the guys who were perpetually on top, they were. Uh, Turner contracts and not WCW contracts, and there just didn't seem to be a way to crack in there. I'd be hard pressed to think of somebody who did that organically, who came in at uh, you know seventy five grand or one fifty. And one fifty was that was good money. Yeah, I mean when Magnum offered me the starting income of fifteen hundred, he said, uh, you know this is uh, like a carrot, right? You know next year it could be one fifty, and I looked at him and I wasn't and I wasn't trying to bring his attention to his own in his own injuries i said magnum you've seen me wrestle there might not be a next year and uh that seemed really to you know that 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 touched him and he was like i'm i think you're worth it i'm going to see what i can do and jim hurd came over and he uh, a couple weeks later he says magnum says he thinks you're worth it and so do i shook my hand and uh there it was it also helped that i had joe petticino's global Global wrestling, yep. which you know was funded by the rare Nigerian prince, <laughs> many of us have heard from, but we didn't know that he didn't have twenty five million dollars. We yeah. didn't know that it seemed like a viable other place to go. To the point where I was actually working global and WCW uh, consecutively. So I remember them talking to me and saying, "You just lost to Terry Gordy on Global." I said, yeah, it was a good match, right? And, Gordy was one of the best guys of his uh, era. Yeah, really underrated as far, especially as far as being realistic and wrestling in Dallas. Man, you know he was going to lay that stuff in, and we had a good match. I've never seen it, but I think it was a good match. Um, but I had that kind of wild card in that I thought I had a backup plan. Backup plan. But when it came to WWE, yeah, I did call. It was just one call, as we you know, we were allowed to do. You know, you test the waters, and uh, there was no. No, yeah, you know, there was no reaction. It was just JJ, who I've come to, you know, understand. It was not JJ. It was Vince. Vince. So I mean, that was me with a pen in my hand writing the book. And but that is what I was thinking. Wait a second, I'm Cactus F and Jack, and I'm getting thirty seconds from JJ F and Dylan. Uh, and I think I may have actually cursed in the book. It was like a, being a kid with a new toy, like. All right, I don't curse much in real life, but in this form, I'm going to exercise the right to drop those f bombs. Um, yeah, I would. I would uh, get the denial. Um, then I would watch Monday Night Raw. I would see Mantor and Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, um, <laughs> Avatar, Al Snow. Oh yeah. And I would think like, don't they know that I know I'm better than this, uh, or yeah. don't they know that I know they're lying when they say they're not looking for new talent? Yeah. They were always bringing in new talent, and it was just Vince's feeling, yeah, that I didn't look like a star, that uh, the adjective he used was seedy, and I think he said to Bruce, uh, there's no, Cactus Jack will never step foot inside a WWF ring. But thankfully, there's somebody else in there who's pushing pretty hard yeah. for you. Jim Ross, yeah. yeah. JR was a head of talent for a good part of that time. And uh, Jr. had always been a booster of mine. Uh, he thought that I com- could come in and work with uh, a lot of the talent, bring a little something different to the table. 
And uh, I'm hearing this through, a, I'm pretty sure Jim's discussed it on, on your show, uh, but I'm I'm reading his autobiography at mm-hmm. like 3 a.m., you know, I'm probably in my underwear, 3 a.m., and it's always cool to see your name, your own name in a book. It I is. don't think anyone ever stops thinking that's cool, right? And I resist the urge to go right to my part, you know, I'm reading the book, and it's a very good book, uh, and then it gets to my part and I read the words <laughs> in bed in my underwear I read the words and I'm imagining Vince's voice in my head is like okay I'll bring him in so you know how it feels to have your heart broken by someone you think is so good who turns out to be the shits <laughs> and this is again my version of reality I don't know if I actually yelled out loud in the room but in my head at least I was yelling out I'm a human being. <laughs> what if I had known this? If this had been the parameters upon which I was uh, hired, yeah. All right, you make. I'm going to be honest. You're coming in to break Jim Ross's heart. I don't think I would have taken them up on that. <clears throat> I don't <clears throat> even think if had I known that Mr. McMahon finally, you know, in the fall of 1995, this is Bruce telling me this in 2000 and probably 12 or 2013. And he finally goes like, all right, I'll bring him in, but I'm covering up his face. And that brings us to The Undertaker. Yeah. Uh, the injury he suffered at the hands of uh, Mabel, or I don't think he was this way yet, Mabel. Yeah, you know. Uh, Perhaps orbital bone, you know, right? Orbital bone, orbital bone. So I would think that almost anyone else, I think there would be a lot of guys who would want to go in our business. But Undertaker, certainly, he wanted to keep going. You know, I don't know. I don't know the wisdom of wrestling with a fractured orbital bone. Probably not great. Um, but uh, the only option out there at the time was a hockey mask. Yeah. And now he's, he's going to look like Jason Voorhees if he wears a hockey mask. So WWE Creative, uh, they come up with a bunch of different looks. And the look they settle on, and it was a great look. Uh, you know, gave him a, a you know, it was a, Phantom of the Opera look. Yeah, Phantom of. of the Opera look. It was scary. It worked with the character. Man, I was kind of sorry to see it go, you know, after he healed because it had put, you know, given a, a new layer to the yes. Undertaker. And then as we see, you know, he's going uh, creating other layers for the next 20 years, right? Although I think we still all love the the traditional the original the original yeah whenever he goes back to the original that's uh, that's the best um but one of the one of the prototypes that vince had i'll call him vince here i'll occasionally call him mr mcmahon but vince really liked this prototype that to me looked like leonardo DiCaprio in the man in the iron mask you know it was drawn out to look like it was constructed of some type of metal uh, looked incredibly uncomfortable, and uh, when I first showed up at his uh, at his uh, at his office, and we'll probably backtrack to how that call came. Sure. Now, there was this illustration of this mask, and uh, there was a guy with long hair, and I actually thought it was a new gimmick for Max Payne. It never dawned on me that uh, Mr. McMahon wanted to bring me in as something other than Captain Jack. Jack. Yeah, yeah. 
So you think those drawings were done originally for you? That mask was never intended for Undertaker, or it was, and well, they just didn't pick it, so they... Yeah, actually, when I said it was Max Payne, it was probably just the Undertaker with long hair. But, you know, you're looking at something... Uh, A drawing out of context. Draw, yeah, drawing out of context. And so we'd probably talk for 90 minutes by the time he goes, we'd like to put you under a hood. And the hood is like that old school Dr. X look. Yeah. I was like, a hood? And then he shows me the uh, the illustration, which would have revealed very little on my face, really. You know, it'd still have that one corner, um, but but even less of it than the uh, Mankind mask. I said, man, Vince, I don't know if I called him Mr. McMahon or Vince at that time. Uh, probably Mr. McMahon on our first meeting. Won't that uh, affect my, uh, I th- said, I think I've got pretty good facial expressions. Um, won't that uh, prevent them? He goes, it won't prevent them. It will accentuate them. <laughs> That's a great answer. So I started thinking about Kurt Cobain and the um, Smells Like Teen Spirit video, where for that first like year, you didn't really know what Kurt Cobain looked like because he had the hair covering you know, uh, one eye, and then you, you know, when he shook when he shook his head, you can kind of see what he looked like. That was pretty intriguing because you didn't. It was you know, in a flip case scenario, naked Midian sounded like a great idea until you saw too much naked Midian. Yeah. By the time he finished his first twelve minute match, that character was dead in the water. Yeah. Whereas up to then, when he just came running out and uh, did the belief, he had the fanny pack with the flesh colored trunks. I remember seeing the monitor almost sold out and thinking there's got to be some five-star match coming up. I said, what's going on? Said, Midian's going to run out naked. So, and he did. And it was one of the funniest things we've all ever seen. But point being, when he wrestled his first 12-minute match, it was too much naked Midian. And uh, so I was thinking the same along the same lines. Less could be better. I could see how this could work. Um, possibly, you know, this is something I can sink my teeth into. Welcome back. This segment of Foley is Pod is presented by Zen Nicotine Pouches, the simpler way to experience nicotine satisfaction and enjoy lasting change on your terms. Zen Nicotine Pouches are fresher, simpler way to enjoy nicotine that's helped millions of people achieve lasting change by offering smoke-free and spit-free satisfaction. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I needed to make a change. Like when I turned 40, I knew I needed to make a change, but I just wasn't ready yet. I'm sure a lot of smokers and dippers out there can relate. And Zen understands there isn't just one right time to make a change. Everyone's timeline is a little different. Everyone's on their own journey. So whenever you feel like you're ready to take that first step toward change, Zen will be there for you with the right strength, the right flavor, at the right time. If you're thinking about making a change and want to learn more today, check out Zen Nicotine Patches at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. So as a reminder, you know, both JR and Bruce were, were both pushing for you, but timeline-wise, I think JJ's still there, or had JJ just left? JJ was still there. Yeah, He was still there because my original uh, dealings were with uh, JJ, and as a matter of fact, I was sent two contracts, and I returned the wrong contract with all my notes on it. It was like, oh, this is crazy. This doesn't give me any 
you know, ownership, you know, and JJ's like, oh, Mick, I think you sent the wrong contract. He's like, oh, yeah, I did send in the wrong contract. Because it was very one-sided at that time. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any representation. I think only Jesse did at that point. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think uh, around that time, Jesse Ventura was the only. Barry Bloom came in, and it was like he was like a pariah to some of the uh, people who make the decisions because they'd never seen an agent in professional wrestling. Um, and then Barry ended up doing a world of good for a lot of people, including me. But uh, at that time, it was just Barry... And you might have a lawyer look over your 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 contract, but it was pretty one. It was extremely one sided. Yeah. To the point where you know the only thing you were guaranteed, and the company was big on saying we don't we don't give guarantees, we give opportunities. But should they choose not to use you, the only thing you were guaranteed was five matches a year at one hundred and fifty dollars a match for five years. So you were guaranteed. $750 a year, and you couldn't go anywhere else for five years should they choose not to lose you. It was, like, it was an insane contract to sign, but, you know, if, uh, if WW, it was great. When WCW was alive and well, it gave the men and women uh, another chance, and it helped, you know, rising tide <laughs> lifts all boats, right? Yeah. And, and it did, but at that time, you know, at that time, you were signing on the dotted line for five years for $750 a year guaranteed. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so, so JJ Dillon is, uh, is still a part of the company. Yeah. And, and I, I just realized we, we let this go by. Did you just a few minutes ago tell a, a positive story about Jim Hurd? We ever, we almost <laughs> never hear a positive story about Jim Hurd. Well, my interactions with Jim Hurd were so, uh, limited. Uh, I can't tell you that I had another reaction with him. Although I, th I think I did show up in 1990 before I met my wife uh, to get my check with, <laughs> with an exotic dancer. Oh, wow. Good for yeah. you. Yeah, good for me. Yeah. Uh, I, and, um, and I think that turned some heads uh, because she looked every bit the exotic dancer, uh, you know, uh, when the clock was off. And I think I, I may have been asked not to bring someone unless they're willing to wear more clothes uh, oh. to the office. Yeah. I, but that may have been Jim Barnett having words with me. I don't want to say it was Hurd. So let me just say my experiences with Jim Hurd were, were, were limited. Uh, yeah. but, they, but they were positive. I know he got, he got upset with Dennis Brent for giving me a two-page spread in uh, the WCW magazine in 1990 because he was looking at me as if, you know, I was a job guy. Technically, I lost a lot of matches, but I was in that gray area because, as I talked about in the, the, the live show, and we'll probably talk about at greater length later on, you know, Jim Cornette and Kevin Sullivan came up with this amazing entrance for me because they had exclusive control over the people losing the matches. There was nothing that prevented them from pushing a guy who was on the losing end of the of the match, and that's what ushered in the Cactus Jack turns on a uh, on a line of tag team partners. Yeah, it, it was such a good idea. I can't believe it hasn't been stolen. Yeah. The worst that somebody could say is, "Isn't that what Mick Foley did in 1989?" But I think a lot of people are like that's what Mick Foley did in '89. And I think it'd be a nice nod and a wink to what Kevin and Corny did back then and also help a guy get over. But Jim said, uh, why are we giving two two pages to a job guy? 
And uh, Dennis uh, tried to explain to him that I wasn't your traditional job guy, although I did lose quite a bit. Um, but when I came back uh, 15 months later, yeah, he was he was very much agreeable to the $3,000 a week. Well, there you go. We're uh, we're gonna have more WCW stories coming yeah, up. Of course, but, but let's uh, let's talk about now. You're gonna be finishing up an all time great run in ECW when you get this call. Um, in fact, you wrote in your book that uh, before the match, where you wore the "Forgive Me, Uncle Eric" shirt, you get the call from Jim Ross. I, I think that's late '95. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And probably you, no, probably November '95. Did you uh, tell? Paul Heyman that Jr. called. What's your relationship like with Paul? It's not like they're in a war with ECW. No, no. I had a really good relationship with Paul. Um, this is something I've, I've discussed only one other time. I think is that I was a, I was a realist. You know, I mean, I wanted big things out of my matches, um, but I had accepted in my in my heart that I wasn't a WWF guy. I had accepted that uh, WCW was never going to use me. Uh, like I wanted to be used, but I realized I had some name value and I thought, okay, I'm pulling in $3,000 a week. I may have been making 3,500 for, uh, for, um, IWA Japan. And that's 3,500 for a 10 day tour. You know, you're there for a week, but it takes you a day and, you know, you're there 10 days total. Uh, by the time you leave your house and get back to your house, it's been 10 days. So 3500 And I was coming back in some pretty wicked shape after those tours. Almost always uh, torn up uh, physically, but bright-eyed and bushy-tailed emotionally. Uh, and I thought, okay, 3500 that's 3500 a month. I'm still doing up getting 500 to 750 on the independent scene, but that was maybe drying up a little bit. Um ECW, Paul's giving me seven fifty for the Philly shows, five hundred for the other shows. I was like, if I can supplement that on uh, Monday nights, I thought I could. I thought I wanted to contact WCW and see if they had me come in as more or less a glorified enhancement guy, put over talent, have good matches, uh, let them get some hard earned wins. And I thought if I could add another thousand a week, I was like, all right, I could be up there in the you know close to that three thousand dollar range. And I explained that to Paul. Paul, you know, first of all, we really can't have you doing <clears throat> jobs on TV if we're going to be pushing you here. And second, he made me realize or made me feel like I was capable of doing more. So that that what basically he's saying, what you're doing is too good not to be seen. Yes, like it's it's going to get the attention. And uh, you and he made me feel like I could be a WWE guy. But more or less, it was not, I mean, bottom line, was not going to let me reach out to WCW with the idea of earning supplemental income on Monday nights by putting over the big stars. Um, and so, uh, sure enough, I probably within a month or two of that conversation, uh, the call from Jim Ross comes. You know, in my mind, it comes like the day I get home from the King of the Death match tournament. Like, right. that's, the, that's the great storytelling way. Because sure. I, I get home and I'm burned and I'm stitched up and there's a story in the book about, uh, you know, shielding my dad who picked me up at JFK Airport uh, from my arm, which is now, you know, like turning colors and the skin's falling off it. Uh, and when I get back to our little apartment, we had rented a house, the bottom part of a house in Long Island, and uh, my wife's like, oh, man, 
was it a smoking flight? Like, no, no. It's like something's awful. She kept saying that, you know. And and then when my dad left, she goes, Mick, seriously, this is a sickening smell. What is? This? I said, it's me. And I took off my sweatshirt, whatever it was, and she sees this huge burn from the King of the Deathmatch tournament. So in my mind, it was like the phone rang at that second, and it's like, hello, Jim Ross, you know. But uh, it was probably another several weeks before I got the call from Jim. I can't wait to talk more about your time in ECW, but uh, today we're talking about mankind. The Observer wrote this. Cactus Jack, who had just moved from New York to Atlanta, was thought due to his look and style to be a wrestler the WWF would never be interested in, but times have changed. He said to be very close to going, with some saying it could be shortly after the Royal Rumble. Heyman supposedly told WWF officials, which have been attempting to make friends rather than enemies, that he didn't want to lose Jack until he could finish this current program and said that would be April of 1996, and the WWF said they were in no hurry to bring him in. The WWF is also looking at ECW as a place where they can send their own wrestlers to get work next year, since they aren't going to be running as many house shows, and guys are already complaining about not getting enough dates. Jack is longtime friends with uh, Troy Martin, the WWF's Dean Douglas, who is well known to be unhappy in his situation in Titan, which may prove to be a factor as well. Which does make me want to ask, did you talk to Shane about that? Because, oh, yeah. boy, he did not have the best experience. <clears throat> yeah, I did. Yeah, Shane was uh, <laughs> Shane wasn't high on the idea of, uh, of going there. Um, and, and as crazy as it sounds now, looking at The Undertaker, it was thought by some of the key people in the business that he'd already had his run. That 96. So he came in uh, Survivor Series in 90. Yep. Six years. Some people thought it's a great gimmick. It's run its course. Um, Undertaker was looking to make uh, some changes in his style. I think uh, if you look at the Undertaker's incredible uh, winning streak at Mania, not all those matches were five-star classes. No, sir. There was a long series. You know, it was just... They would put him in a program with someone who was bigger than him in yes. some way. So whether it was Giant Gonzalez being taller than him, it was uh, Kamala uh, being Bundy. Heavy, Bundy, yeah. So you weren't getting, you know, and then you know, Snook, when he wrestled Snooka, Snooka was a little past his prime at that point. And I think, uh, not that Snooka was bigger than Undertaker, but uh, they had gravitated towards that by those final years. He didn't have the best opponents. Yeah. And I can't, I've never even had it verified. Now, I've never even asked Mark if he was the guy who said, I want to work with this guy. Because I went from being, a, um, you know, a character that Vince was bringing in uh, for the sole purpose of breaking Jim Ross's heart to somebody who started out on, uh, you know, like near the top of the card by coming out. I did have a match with Bob Holly. Uh, my opening match was with Bob Holly, but on that same episode of Raw, I uh, came out of the uh, crowd or came down to the uh, down the aisle. And I jumped the Undertaker, and we were off to the races. I thought I found it a little odd, especially in hindsight, that Dave mentioned that you moved from New York to Atlanta. I mean, I guess at the time, you know, there's the spiritual home of the WWF, which is New York, not Connecticut, right. and of course Atlanta is the backyard. But that doesn't seem. Well, there's a reason. Uh, the reason behind it is we owned a home in Atlanta. Right. When I was working steadily in Japan, um, my and my wife had worked herself into phenomenal shape after having two children. 
and uh, she wanted to give the modeling a try, and that's a New York thing. So we rented our house for six months, and for the six months I was on Long Island, it made traveling a lot easier because we we uh, flew northwest. I'm sure Delta had a nonstop, but that's not what I was flying. So I was flying northwest, uh, and then uh, northwest would, had, had nonstop flights uh, to Tokyo from New York. Um, and also my parents were there. Yeah. It was great to see my parents. But when we ba- went back to Atlanta, it was because I had landed the WWE job. Uh, we had decided that my wife had – she'd gotten some work, but not enough to – uh, explain away giving up, you know, what was a really nice little home, right? yeah. a little nice little home there in a, a suburb of Atlanta. That's why we went back. Gotcha. So, uh, what do you think of the report that Paul Heyman says? Oh, I'm not done with him yet. I need him to April. <laughs> I mean, that, that feels also, a little different than uh, the way it was originally explained of, oh, no, you're better than this. Oh, but not yet. Um, but th- both things could have happened. Yeah. You know, both things could have happened. I was, I was, t- I, I would argue that I believe it was always the plan to come out the day after Mania. Uh, they weren't in a rush. Um, I had, I, had, well, and another thing is, I had said to Vince um, that I, I, I wanted to finish my commitments in Japan. He said, "Have you signed a contract?" I said, "No." And he looked at me and said, "So you want to do dates based on a handshake and not a contract?" I said, uh, "Yes, if I could." He said, that's the type of man I want working for me. Because yeah. at that point, he'd had a lot of departures, guys that he probably thought would never leave. Um, and so I think he liked the idea of someone who was sticking to his word based on a handshake. So I would I continued to do the Japanese tours. I continued to do ECW. But now I took the, I took the steam off of WCW as part of my anti-hardcore gimmick. Uh, because I went from the Forgive Me, Uncle Eric airbrushed shirt, which was a classic, yeah. the Dungeon of Doom, you know, because that that was like the antithesis of what ECW fans wanted. And then when, when you know, of course, the ECW fans would know before anyone, the word got out I was heading to WWF. And I don't think I was forbidden from mentioning it, mentioning it because we did incorporate it into the character. And so instead of forgive me, Uncle Eric, I had the WWF and F T-shirt, yeah. and I started talking about uh, WWF. So it was a, it was known that I was going, going. there. Yeah. So you wrote in your book, uh, Jr.'s new call informed me that this might be the right job, and that Vince McMahon had a new idea, and that he would like to set up a meeting. This was a top spot. He informed me. And would hopefully lead to a successful series of matches with The Undertaker. I had one question before I agreed to a meeting. Jim, you don't tell everyone who comes in that they're being groomed for a top spot, do you? I mean, what did you tell Aldo Montoya when he came in? Jim thought about it and came back with an answer. No, we don't, Cactus. If we say it's a top spot, we mean it. In Aldo's case, we probably told him it was a good spot, but not a great spot. But there would be room for advancement if the character caught on. All right, I said, let's set up a meeting. Does that sound right? Yeah, it sounds exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's right on the money. So it doesn't seem like I can really see Vince or JR saying, okay, we're really excited about this idea, or Vince is really excited about this idea, but 
why don't you and Mikey Whipwreck and Tommy Dreamer and Raven go finish your story? That doesn't seem like something that's very Vince-like. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, remember, I, I'm I'm traveling all. I'm going to Japan ten days out of the month. I'm still working indies. I love the stuff we're doing in ECW. Um, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, uh, but I, maybe there was a relationship with Paul that was uh, the, the fuller and deeper than I, I thought. But whatever the case, they allowed me to finish out my run to the point where when I did the final match with Mikey Whipwreck, and I got the incredible response that I wasn't expecting. Because I did two, two matches. Uh, my two final matches were at the Lost Battalion Hall against Chris Jericho where I suffered the first of a long streak of losses. You know, didn't redeem myself until I uh, got the pinfall at my Hall of Fame induction ceremony, which I'm counting as a victory. Uh, but what I remember most about that night was that the Cactus Jack shirt was fairly new, right? It came out in late 95. Yeah. So I got my T-shirt guy, Bruce Savini. Um, he brings the shirts, and we're told that the hall wants 50% of the money up top, no accounting for what you've got in the shirt. So say shirts were selling for 20 at that time. I would get 10 and I'd have $7 in the shirt. So I get $3. That's just not right. Yeah. So I had Bruce. I said, why don't you walk the line? You know, the long line of people waiting to get in. Bruce comes back. He, he hasn't sold a single shirt. He's got about five or six loogies hanging off him where people have actually spit on him. Oh, wow. Because he's my T-shirt guy. And Bruce says, they hate you here. So I came out as a pure 100% heel at the Lost Battalion Hall in Queens. And Jericho and I, we had a good match, and I was happy. It was his first match in ECW. Happy to put him over because I was, you know, one of the guys going to bat for Chris with ECW to begin with. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, and maybe I was marking out a little bit, but I think we all do. And I thought, man, it would be nice to get a little kinder response from the ECW fans and uh, when I went out there it was just I wasn't prepared for that type of favorable response everybody on their feet chanting Cactus Jack it was just it was just an incredible response and it was in front of the you know 900 to 950 people they have there it wasn't a 20,000 seater but that building came alive and they gave me that incredible send-off and I, then I cut my promos. So, I mean, I, I imagine the current Mick Foley would say, listen, all right, here's the deal. I do the match. <laughs> Get me in first for promos. I'm going back to the hotel. But the Cactus Jack at that time was glad to wait four or five hours to cut promos. And then I went directly from the – I'd like to think I snuck in a shower, but that's not necessarily the case. I went to Corpus Christi. And uh, with no sleep whatsoever, and I had kind of a, not a tryout match, because I was already in, but a dark match with Aldo Montoya. So although I debuted officially for WWE the day after Raw, the day after Mania, 1996, I was actually there a couple weeks, a couple days earlier. Uh, hadn't figured out, we weren't doing the thing with the hair pulling yet, you know, it was still a, definitely a work in progress. And the character was definitely a work in progress. Until, uh, you know, until I hung it up. So let's talk about just the very beginning of, of your introduction to what this New York thing is going to look like. Yeah. When JR first mentions The Undertaker, yeah. is that 
I mean, listen, you had been in a big time program with Vader and you had been in a big time program with Sting and, you know, obviously he's doing his thing now, but boy, he was the standard bearer for sure, WCW. Yeah, he was yeah. there, Hulk Hogan and, you know, the Cactus Jack persona and Sting. I mean, they just went together as a perfect heel and mm-hmm. baby face. And, but this is maybe more up your alley, a beloved character that is a little darker and more sinister, not the blonde hair and neon colors. Were you excited about the undertaker or did you think, well, does that mean I'm going to be Kamala and King Kong Bundy and giant Gonzalez? Or what was your initial response? Do you think? I, I didn't think I was getting my hand raised. Yeah. You know, I, I thought I was coming in to do, I always believed that I could get over without going over. Yeah. Going back to what Corny and, and, uh, Kevin did for me, um, uh, by, by assaulting my tag team partners after our matches, I always believed that I didn't need the win to, uh, make an impression, to make an impression. Now there's a point where. You you stretch that uh, philosophy a little too far. If you never win, then the fans are not going to believe you are a credible threat. So you have to pile up enough wins. And also, at that time, create injury and mayhem. There was actually the threat of danger when certain heels were in the arena. Um, Bruiser Brody. Yeah, yeah. So now, I I believe... Could you imagine if Abby was uh, Abdullah the Butcher... If Abby was in a position where the organization insisted that he go for a cover after every move, uh, it wasn't that Abdullah the Butcher was a great competitor looking to score a victory over the best and to prove himself to be the best in the business. He was looking to kill you. That's what people thought when even even when uh, you know the process of wrestling you know was was largely known i would say people still, afraid Abdullah. people still feared certain guys and so i wanted to be that guy who caused people in the building or watching tv to go okay i know most of wrestling is what it is but that guy oh that guy's real and so i wanted that element of danger and oh man my confidence was really it was really high because i felt like i had a great very good track record, not only of having good matches, but of making the guys I worked with just a little bit better off when I had left. And that was my goal. And I don't know if that's the goal of that many people, especially of my era. I couldn't tell you what the younger guys of the generation of today thinks. Uh, I think most of the guys want to tear down the house. But there's a difference between tearing down the house and elevating your opponent even when your opponent is already higher than you are. So to come into a program, almost inevitably know you're going to be on the losing end and still believe you can elevate that person and elevate yourself simultaneously. It's it's a pretty difficult trick to pull off, but I felt that in spite of my limited genetic hand, that that was something I, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was one of my strong suits. I want to talk a little bit about you know, cash and creative. That's what Jr. says. It always comes down to in his years of talent relations. It's always one of the two C's, Connie, cash and creative. But I imagine that which one is more important sometimes changes based on where you are in life. And so when you walked away from your bigger deal with WCW, uh, and we're hoping to maybe carve out your own niche, uh, so to speak, maybe like an Abdul, the butcher or a bruiser, the Brody, and maybe that would be create more creatively fulfilling, there's also the you're the primary wage earner. You're dad. Yeah. You got kids at home. Was there a point while you're 
you know, trying to make it work on independence and, and getting burned up and working ECW where you or the wife think, you know, I know both C's are important, but maybe a little more cash, a little less creative. Well, they were, they, I want, I needed to make money, needed to uh, pay the mortgage. My take wife, care of the fam. Take care of the family. But I was really, really, um, I'd say primarily I wanted to make an impact. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I made almost as much uh, in the year that followed WCW, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we speak now, we're a couple weeks out maybe from when uh, Cody Rhodes um, parted ways with AEW. But I think people should give Cody uh, a lot of credit for leaving WWE on his own. Yep. Because he believed that he was capable of more and than he was. creative. And he was. So I applaud anybody who goes out there and makes themselves more valuable without the national TV uh, machine behind them. The Young Bucks did it. Uh, Kenny uh, Omega did Kenny it. Kenny Omega did it. Uh, well, I would say Kenny didn't have the national platform like a WCW, WWE, but he did have the opportunity to go there and said, yeah. no, I'm good. Yeah. And that's great for business. Vince needs to hear that more often, you know, whether it's Vince or Triple H hearing the, you know, actually, I'm good where I am. I like that. Uh, but even those guys who are giving up the potential for bigger money, they need to make some money, too. Uh, I felt like I was going to be okay. I never questioned the money. I never questioned it. I thought the high end of what you could make was uh, for, for about four hundred grand for a guy like me, and if I could have gotten four hundred grand, you know, for a three or four year run, I thought with the standard of living I had at the time, that was gonna that was gonna be pretty good because I was gonna save whatever it was. I didn't have to give to Uncle Sam. You know, we were going to save for for a rainy day. Uh, so I was concerned with the money, but not as concerned as I was about making an impact. I'm curious when you said, you know, if I could make 400 grand for three years, did you go in thinking this has an end point? I mean, a, a lot of guys, when they start wrestling or they have success in traditional sport, they think it's going to last forever. At that point, you'd been in the business for a while. Did you think, maybe, maybe I'll get three years out of this? Well, I was pretty realistic about what I wanted to do physically. You know, I think, uh, you know, experts at the time would have already predicted my oh, <laughs> yeah. demise. And so I knew I was fighting the clock. Uh, I was really grateful when uh, Jerry Briscoe sat me down and uh, uh, he asked me that first day that I was uh, that I was ready to make my my uh, my actual debut on TV. Uh, asked me what move I thought I could do, The Undertaker, and I said I can drop an elbow off a TV truck. And he said. We know you do some wild things. There may come a time when we ask you to do that. But until we ask you to do that, please, you know, he told me to hold back. So I ended up dropping an elbow off the ring apron, and it looked great. Undertaker sold it big time. Like, we didn't need an elbow off the TV truck, because, which I still want to do, by the way. Even if it's not in a match, I still want to drop an elbow off a TV truck because of the camera shot. Oh, it'd be unbelievable. And it was, you want me to set the scenario? for sure. the TR? This is, I first pitched it, and I would write things out in WCW, you know, longhand, and then I would pay somebody to type it up, and it would be three, 4,000 words of description. Oh, wow. So I wanted to have the Falls County Anywhere match with Vader as a payoff for our big feud. And I wanted there to be a double-arm DDT on the hood of a car, 
Boom. Vader stays in the hood of the car. The force of the DDT, you know, flips me off the car. So you see Leon, and now we got the camera shot, you know, and it's like, here's Leon on the hood. Camera's looking up towards the TV truck, but we don't know the TV truck's coming into play. So now I roll under the TV truck, at which point there's a ladder there, so I can climb that thing. And then we're going back, and they're showing the replays. And I, most of the time, I had Jim Ross in my head when it came to things I was planning. And then it was like, for the love of God, I don't know if he said that. He's on the truck. He's on the truck. What would make that elbow so great is that you could mess with the shocks. You could loosen them up. And then when I hit that thing, it's it's like got a natural give to it, yes. at least enough. Boom. And it's and it would look like I was sailing right into people's living rooms because of the camera shot, that low angle shot. And the hood of the car and with the, the shocks. Yeah. Would yeah. make it bounce. And, yeah. Right. And um, I wanted to uh, get the fall in a do- like in a doorway. Uh, and then the controversy would be it was Falls County anywhere in the building. And Leon's shoulders were outside the building. That's tremendous. Something along those lines. So that was the one I always wanted to drop. I wanted to drop it on The Undertaker, but instead I came out of the crowd. Um, yeah, and I dropped it, or out of the crowd or down the aisle, I can't remember which, and dropped a really nice elbow while simultaneously fighting for breath with that restricted mankind mask, which I hated. So we mentioned Shane Douglas earlier. You know, when when you're trying to leave ECW and go to the WWF, he's coming the opposite direction. Um, you know, obviously he didn't have the best experience. Is he telling you avoid Sean? Vince is full of shit. They're gonna they're gonna take your polo shirt out of your check or whatever the issues were. <laughs> what were his? Be be mindful and be wary of this. What was that? Uh, he just he was really sour on the experience. Um, we had that well-documented friendship going back to very early 1986. So I started in 85, but my first training session with Danucci was January of 86. No, no, my first training session in Freedom, Pennsylvania with the other guys. Up until then, I've been training before Tommy D's independent shows when I got the ring set up in time. So I'd known Shane a long time. He was just really sour on that experience. But I also realized that he was giving me a perspective from a sour point of view. Yes, and uh, and I, I do remember that I I thought that I should uh, we should try to get a, in that uh, cactus uh, Shane Douglas rivalry before he went to WWE, and it didn't happen. But as soon as Shane came back from WWE, he's like, "You want to do that match? Want to do that match now?" We did end up having a really good match, uh, Shane and I, uh, that set up the final match for me and Mikey. And I believe it was based around my departure to WWE and culminated with me pre-Rocket, pre-I uh, um, quit match with The Rock being handcuffed and calling out for Mikey Whipwreck. And then Mikey just waylaying me with a chair shot, belying his, you know, the size of his arms, right? Like he just people. Some people think I was the sickest chair shot they've seen because yeah. I was handcuffed. I believe I was in the figure four or something to that effect. So we did. Uh, I was able to do great business with uh, with ECW on my way out. Like it had the type of heat as a heel that you didn't think you could get, but I was able to get by, um, you know, pushing the right buttons. 
And, and Bruce went on to say, like, that's what sold Vince was the ability, my ability to, to tell stories and to cut promo. I don't know if Vince had ever seen my promos, though. I see. I don't know if Vince had ever seen my promos. Because now, fast forward to when I'm doing these uh, promos, probably very early 1996, probably January 1996, I'm cutting these promos with a new character. I don't want it to just be Cactus Jack with a mask. Everyone seems to like them, except Vince. And that's when I said to J- Jimmy Cornette was the guy who would break the bad news to me. At that time, Jimmy was in the WWE office. And he said, Vince hates the promos. I thought Vince loved my promos. He told me he had. And uh, Jimmy said, Cactus, I'm not sure Vince has ever seen one of your promos. And I went, became real, really scared, right? Because, uh, you know, the Mankind stuff, maybe it was a little over the top, you know. But, uh, I mean, I thought it was very moody and creative and you know, the stuff done like it was done in a dungeon. And I've got the George the Rat crawling all, all over me, which I wasn't crazy about, but I wasn't going to let it stand in the middle of a, you know, a run. Uh, so I was I was really, really concerned when I learned that Vince didn't necessarily know much about some of the people he was bringing in. It's amazing to me that you think perhaps the mankind character was a little much so anyway mantar and damien demento santa claus bastion booger and abe knuckleball shorts and i like come on that's not too much yeah well i mean i was definitely airing grievances with society yeah and i was going with the you know the shrieking which eventually burned my voice out you know the hype was so memorable uh yeah i thought i thought it was a really good way to enter and it was surprising how few people knew. The only people who knew I was Cactus Jack was that portion of the crowd that watched WCW. WCW. Or ECW, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd say 75% of the people had no idea who I was. And that's what made the storytelling in 97 so valuable is that I was revealing things to the audience that they did not know and found astonishing. I still think, you know, as much as I love Cactus Jack and, and all that he accomplished, the Mankind performance, Yeah, I mean, that was you with the volume turned all the way up, the pulling the hair out, one entrance music, one exit music. We're going to get into all that, yeah. but there's so many layers to that as opposed to this guy's just a madman. Right, yeah. Well, this is a little different. This is a crazy person. Yeah. And, and it was it was phenomenal. But I want to mention the meeting because there's so many stories that guys have about when they first meet Vince. Yeah. You know, oh, he sent me a first-class ticket and picked me and my wife up in a limo and put us up at the Ritz, and he brought us out to the house, and they had fresh-baked cookies. You get the meeting at the office. What, the what do you remember about that? I knew that Vince had really high plan, big plans for you. You met at the house. I knew that in wrestling lore. As far as the limo and those type of things, that was kind of a moot point because I was living in Long Island. So sure. It's a 90-minute drive. And I always, I don't know if a shoot, a shoot is the right uh, uh, disregarded. Uh, I didn't like limos. They made Nobody me, does. Yeah, they made me, uh, say, you know, literally sick to my stomach. So I started realizing I have to drive up front. So even when WWE sends a car, even if I get a, a, a car, uh, um, a if you service, have a driver, you're riding shotgun. I ride shotgun because I realize I always get sick to my stomach in these things. Um, so Boy, that the, tickles me. The guy who will fly off a cage, got to ride up front, motion sickness. 
Oh, I, I realized that right, after a while, I was like, I always have a headache. Ah, it's the backseat of the car. But there was one limo driver WWE had, and I, we ended up talking about this guy in the dressing room. Yeah, I feel sick too. It was almost like he was driving with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at all times. So when my family went with me to an appearance at Toys R Us for WWF, I remember Ashley Massaro was me and Ashley. Like So after uh, Ashley, you know, you know, just obviously a very tragic situation the only photos i had of us were from that um that meeting uh that that toys r us thing so i think i'd been on the road for a while so i had the guy pick me up and my kids rode in the uh limo and at a certain point um the limo pulled over so my two boys threw up because they were so sick to their stomach wow from then on i said no limos no limos so i would do appearances of like six flags great adventures and I'll do it, but I'm not. I'm not going in a limo. And they said, "But it's in the contract." You know, Six Flags wants to see. I was like, "All right, here's the exit. You guys meet me at this exit. I'll get out of my car. I'll get in the limo and ride one exit up. We'll one exit up. And yeah. if, if it's important, I said personally, I don't think it helps my character to come out of a limo. I don't yeah. think that you know, it's not the same thing as when." Rick can't get out of a you know eighty four Prius. <laughs> that kind of hurts Rick's character, but it doesn't hurt mine to show up in a rental car. Um, but uh, that was that was going back to the 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 the, the first the meeting in the limo. Yeah. I didn't have any of that, but I was meeting at his office. I understood that if he had really high hopes for me, that I would have been at the house. And I also wasn't crazy about him going, what would Mike like? What's best for Mike? He didn't really know me. And at that point, not too many people were calling me Mick Foley. I was still cactus to almost everybody. But nobody called you Mike. Nobody called me Mike. And it's how a matter of how do you tell this man? Yeah. And it would be like that SNL skit where uh, nobody can tell the president he has mustard on his chin. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be that guy. And I think, you know, I think Howard Finkel would fill him in on some details. What would Mike like? And, uh, you know, I was thinking Mike would like to be Mick. Yes. And he wishes this meeting was in your house instead of in the office. Because you're the king in your house. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) So, Mick, after a big match back in the day, you know, it's been said once upon a time, especially in New York, Vince would take the guys out for a big steak. Maybe once upon a time it was Smith and Walensky, something like that. Everybody loves steak, do they not? Oh, man. I was at Smith & Walensky's uh, with Al Snow and Kevin Kelly. And Mr. McMahon walked in with a bunch of people. And then uh, word came over that he was picking up our check. Wow. I'd never been so embarrassed because this is Smith & Walensky, one of the top steakhouses in New York City and the country. Yeah. And the bill for three people was $37. So we were going cheeseburger, water with lemon in it. Yeah, so we were there. I think if you want to enjoy some of the finer things, you need to go with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks is going to get you the same great steak that you've been dreaming of, but boy, it comes right to your house. And here's a little gift-giving wisdom from Omaha Steaks. Dads want steaks. And with Father's Day right around the corner, there isn't a better gift than Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com and type Foley in the search bar and order the Dads Want Steaks package. For just 99 bucks, this limited package will include 16 mouthwatering entrees he's guaranteed to love. We're talking smoky, tender-wrapped bacon fillets, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. 
And for a sweet finish, what about those delicious caramel apple tartlets? I'm getting hungry just thinking about it, Mick. And as a special gift for our listeners, when you type Foley, that's F-O-L-E-Y in the search bar, and you order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor made from 100% Omaha Steaks, and now they're bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces. Six ounces? Six ounces. Come on now. We're not talking about a quarter pounder. We're talking about a quarter and a half pounder. This is a lot of poundage here. A lot. Right? I'm just saying, don't wait. Send Dad more than a gift. Send him an experience he'll love and can share with you. You see, that's the pro tip right there, Mick. Because if you just get Dad a tie, when are you ever going to get to enjoy that tie? But if, if you get Dad Omaha steaks, he's going to grill them. He's going to invite you over. You're eating good too. It's kind of a gift for both. And I have of to you. tell you, as a guy who's tr- who has been cutting down on the meat consumption, you need to take that that steak experience and make it something special. Yes, that's why when it comes to red meat, if it's not Whataburger and it's not Omaha, I don't know if I can take part. I got to recommend it. Go to omahasteaks.com, type Foley in the search bar, and order the Dad's Want Steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and four desserts, plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword Foley. But he, he was really, you know, he's very intent when you're there. He was. He, Who else in the room? It's. I believe at that point, it's just me and Vince. Okay. May have been me, Vince, and JJ. His office at the time looks like it didn't be on the mat. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's at the top of uh, Titan Towers. Yeah. Real elaborate. Uh, you know. Real beautifully uh, appointed. Yeah. And it's. Um, and and I'm lucky that I got there when I was over 11 years into my uh, career because I had definite points of view that I thought. Were valid, and I wasn't shy about expressing those points of view, even when it came to the name of the character. And is that something we we want to get into? Yeah. So uh, I'm curious when he lays out, "I've got this vision." What, what's that sound like? How well, he's ta- ta- we're having a long, pretty long talk, good talk. Then he unveils this uh, this face, you know, this uh, this guy with the iron mask, pitches me the idea that it will accentuate rather than. Um, prevent me from making great uh, facial expressions and i go home and i'm not i'm not sold on it i am not sold on it um so it was really uh, over the next few days talking with my wife who made me believe that you know maybe there was another character inside of me besides cactus jack because she knew that was part of me but not completely me and she also knew that I was a fairly complex individual and that I would be capable of creating somebody who was not just Cactus Jack with a mask on. Um, so I think I was still on the fence when I went to Japan. And I can't remember which tour this was. Um, but this is one of the three or four tours that I did uh, on the handshake that Mr. McMahon appreciated. So you accepted the job? I, I can't tell you for a fact if I accepted it before I went to Japan or maybe I had accepted it, but I wasn't sure how things were going to go. So in the context of that first meeting with Vince, you're in his office. How long would you say the meeting lasts? Two hours. 
And so when you said we had a good chat at first, is that just him getting to know you? Are you married? Tell me about your yeah, kids. Yeah, you know, sort of and I had the added benefit of it, like being in the town over from being born in the town over from his view across across the, sound, the Long yeah. Island Sound. Yeah. So you can see the smokestacks in Port Jefferson. I was born in Setauket, which is the next town. There's a famous deli called Seaport Deli called because it's on the border of Setauket and Port Jefferson. Uh, so I had that, and I, like we made a little small talk. We had a pretty good rapport right away. Um, but Did he when, mention any of your stuff in WCW, ECW? At he all? mentioned that he was. He mentioned that he was a fan of the, of the promos, um, and that's why I was surprised when Jimmy revealed that maybe Vince had never seen. Uh, I still maintain this is not me being bitter at all, but I still maintain. If you're bringing talent in, like as Vince is as mindful of he, as he is of every minute situation, maybe somebody should give him a highlight package of the maybe like an hour spent in front of the TV seeing some clips from matches, some promos. That might be a really good way to spend an hour so that you're not judging a guy based on one match in a ring that's two feet taller than he's ever been in or has ever been in my point in 11 years since I was last in, uh, 10 years since I was last in a WWF ring. You're working with ropes instead of cables. Like, it's an it's almost like an entirely different world. And the ring's concrete. Yeah, at that yeah. point, before they made the change, they're still going with the ring that Dick Ebersol approved of because he didn't want to see a ring moving on Saturday night's main event. So now that's great if that was the only time that ring was used was Saturday night's main event, but it's also the house show ring. It's a television ring. And I think that's why the match content suffered for years because it was just really painful. Yeah. Just something like a suplex. When Brett uh, and Owen do the superplex inside the blue cage, like you can see, there's no uh, hardly any give at all. Yeah, I won't say it was like concrete because nothing's like concrete except concrete. But it wasn't. Uh, it it's was not a, the ring you wrestled in in no, Continental. No, it wasn't the, the Continental ring. Bumping yeah. Rings. yeah, yeah, the Southern bumping rings, uh, or or even the WCW ring. Yeah, uh, it was unlike anything I'd ever been before. And so now Vince's first, he's basically going to grade you on what he sees in that, not on the in the ring, but what he sees on his monitor. You have a 13-inch monitor. That's the world that Vince discovers you in, what you do that first time. Now, as far as how open he is to commentary from Vince and Bruce, I guess he is because that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, but I did take on that job. It was either – I don't know if I gave them a yes within a day or two or whether I went to Japan and thought about it. I do know I started seeing some potential – when I was reading in the back of the bus, I was reading um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the cl you know classic gothic novel, and I was listening to the music of Tori Amos. <laughs> and that's why mankind in his original incarnation was a pianist. He was an artist of some sort who had taken a hammer to you know his whole hand. Uh, for reasons that's I don't, what Vince laid out. No, no, that's what I laid out. Okay. So when I came in. Uh, uh, to do the uh, promo videos, this was the character I had in my mind. And uh, 
uh, he was a guy, you know, I remember going over the verbiage with Corny, you know, every finger on, every finger on my hand saved two. So these were the two fingers that were undamaged. That was why in my head I was using the mandible claw. And by Vince accepting the mandible claw, he did a great service for my long-term well-being, even though I got banged up and you know, ultimately had a lot of trouble getting around for a long number of years up until the the hip surgery. And I still don't walk like, uh, you know, there's still a definite uh, limp, you know, limp in my hitch. Um, but by using the mandible claw, now I've got a hold that I can use on anyone at any time that doesn't cause me pain. And he did bring up the biting of the fingers. That's why Bill Watts had disregarded it out of hand. Would I just bite your goddamn fingers? Wait, hang on. Okay, we're we're we're, we're moving okay. here. Uh, the mandible claw is something you created. I didn't create it. I uh, brought it back at the suggestion of Jim Cornette. And Cornette pitched it based on the story from the Fugitive. Yes. And you apparently pitched that once to Watts. I pitched it to Watts. You know, what year was that? That was probably uh, ninety four. Maybe 93. No, Watts came in 93, I think. No, Watts, sorry. Watts came in 92 because he oh, was... Oh, in WCW. Okay. WCW. He was the guy in charge when I did the Beach Blast with Sting. That was like the first month that Bill was there. So uh, back then, you had to run your finish past somebody, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And Cornette gave you that idea in 92? Probably gave it to me in 92. Uh, I was like, Jimmy, man, you know, this elbow, this is a tough thing to do on house shows. And plus you got to either accept a count out or roll a guy in. Um, and I did like, there was one match, an enhancement match I had, and I looked inconquerable. This is 1990. At that point, I dropped an elbow from the apron, went over the guardrail. I'd pulled it in and, you know, years later it would be like, well, there's, he dropped an elbow over guardrail. I just saw RVD do a moonsault off the yeah. second rope over the, you know, but for its time, it and time. especially, you know, at my size to come over and drop the elbow over the guardrail, then throw the guy back over the guardrail, roll him in. And then I caught him with a bow and arrow cradle and brought him back for the pin. So it's like a, I've just done all this barbaric stuff, and then I lose. I win with a technical right. wrestling move, which just added a little layer to that that character. But I looked like unconquerable there, and that was 1990, even when I was predominantly known for for losing. But man, I needed something I could do that wasn't going to have me dropping elbows all the time. Corny brought up the idea of the mandible claw, laid out the history of Doctor Sam Shepard, upon yeah. whom the uh, TV show and the movie The Fugitive was based, and I pitched it to Watts. He shot it down immediately. Saying, I'll just bite your some fingers. Of fingers. And, I, and I tried telling him it was a nerve hole, but he wasn't interested. Uh, when I brought it up to Vince, I think he said, well, why wouldn't someone bite your fingers? And I explained it to him anatomically. It goes underneath the tongue, nerves, th your thumb pushes up on the nerve. I said, and the thing about it, it's very visual. I said, I can't think of another hold except the Cobra Clutch, where you have both the the face of both the uh, perpetrator and, and, victim. The, and victim in the same frame. And I sold him on that idea that, you know, I was always very camera conscious. And he, I, I don't know if he approved it right away, because at that time, especially in the second or third meeting, I was pitching a lot of ideas and he was doing a lot of writing. So I didn't know how much of it would come to fruition. 
um, we should probably probably start with the pitching of the name before I tell you how that worked out. Well, what was his vision for the character? You told us what your vision is, where he's a pianist who took a hammer to his hand. But when he shows you the drawing of the guy in the mask, and maybe it's Max Payne, we think. It turns out it's yeah. probably The Undertaker. What did he say was the big idea that you had been summoned to his office for? Well, there was the idea of pitching this character. He didn't have a name He for did it. not have a name at first. Um, they threw the name Headcase. It was supposed to look like he was in an asylum. There were the three or four different drawings they had. And the one, one guy, was in a straitjacket, right? Straight, headcase was in the straitjacket. Vince asked me if I minded. He heard that I had the missing ear. Would you mind accentuating that? Um, I was. I had a little tiny lawsuit with WC. I say lawsuit because I was just looking for the money that uh, I would have gotten for six months had I gotten the surgery that I was told I could get. And so it, well, I didn't think it was being petty. I wasn't shooting for you know three point seven million. It was just a. I believe I should be entitled this because it's what I was told I would get, and because I didn't get it, I'm because I instead of opting for surgery, I came at, at your request and did finished out my days uh, as a wrestler. I think it would be good if we stuck to the original plan, which was to you know I don't think at that point I would have gotten the surgery. Because by this point, no, it's the missing years. It's part of me, right? Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine me. Uh, even fans will gradually accept that I'm going to have these bottom teeth fixed, right? <laughs> and the top one. There's a lot of missing teeth there. Uh, they'll accept that. I don't think they'd accept me showing up with extensive plastic surgery in a new year. Like, I think they feel like this is part of the Cactus Jack mankind they grew up with. And, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can cut your hair short. We're still going to love you. You can get your teeth fixed, especially if it's by Dr. Britt Baker. We're going to love you. Don't don't mess with that ear. Um, it's funny you mentioned the W lawsuit. I didn't know that, but I've heard for years that a lot of guys figured out the threshold for Turner Legal, where if you ask for less than six figures, they just pay you to make it go away. Well, I was asking for like 115 Gs. Uh, and the problem I had was that I did not realize when I'd torn a knee ligament uh, that I had received a small payment as a partial permanent disability. Uh, and so I don't that was 10 or 12 grand or something like that. So I was acknowledging in some way that I was an employee, even though I wasn't an employee. So it was like they had their cake and was able to eat it too in that they could pay you as a contractor but consider you an employee, and it was legal. That's in, weird. In the state of Georgia. And so once that came to light, which I'd completely forgotten about, you know, the loss, I did, I lost that, you know, but I wasn't, I lost that lawsuit. Uh, in a way, I wish I'd never filed it because I was, uh, you know, using the ear. And at that point, I didn't really care that I didn't have it. It was just that uh, matter of, well, they told me I could. Sure. And then I came back out at their request to do the matches and I just thought that they should have made do, you know, on what they originally said. But yeah. at that point, I was a WWE guy, and it was probably something worth fighting for that. You probably ask Eric about that because he would have known more about the inner workings of that Foley lawsuit. But it wasn't frivolous. You know, it was definitely an injury. Oh, for um, sure. You know. I've just heard over the years a few, uh, I think even Bruce Mitchell once took issue with something that uh, Eric Bischoff said in a newsletter. And I think Bruce was privy to it. And the idea was, hey, man, if you sue for a hundred grand, they won't settle. You sue for 80 grand, just, just keep checking the mail. 
Hmm. I thought the, I thought WWE <laughs> fought everything. Well, or, I'm saying WCW. WCW. Yeah. Gotcha. WCW. Yeah. Okay. I should have known. <laughs> Son of a nutcracker. So you have this first meeting with him, and and he doesn't have a name for the character, but he knows he likes the look. Yeah. Um. Or at least he wants to cover up his face. Whatever. Cover up his face. Yeah. Um. Did he have a backstory in that first meeting of why this guy wears a mask? No. He just thought it was a cool look. Yeah. And so what's the context of the rest of the meeting? Once you get through the niceties of, oh, I used to live over the, where that smokestack is and, hey, you like my promos and we like this cool drawing of this guy, he's still just offering opportunity or is this a more guaranteed deal? No, no guarantee. So uh, um, I took some umbrage once Stone Cold and I found out that I love Mark Meyer was a great human being, right? One of the greatest ex-wrestlers. Sure. In that he does these great talks with students and he's changed lives he's probably saved some lives uh but at that point when i found out that mark came in like almost a week less than a week after i had with a guarantee that became uh that became it was good for me it was good for steve too because we both felt like we were two guys who uh who could go you know who could be a cornerstone for the company uh, and Steve had signed, you know, a few months earlier than I had for just a, an opportunity. Yeah. I'd signed for the opportunity, and then Mark came in with a guarantee. That became a real driving force for us. So Vince sort of lays out the plan. You know, Undertaker apparently had been telling him and Kevin Nash uh, that that they needed you on the roster. Uh, yes, and, thank you, Taker. Um, then the mask. You wrote in your right. book that when you see the mask. Your heart drops. Uh, is it because you really had in your mind's eye, I was going to be Cactus Jack, and you couldn't imagine yourself as anything else? Conrad, it wasn't broke. <laughs> it didn't need to be fixed. Like, the, you know, I, it, one thing that really stung a little bit was when Vince was pushing uh, the uh, the Dude Love character, and he really did push that. He did a voiceover. He goes, after having a modicum of success as Cactus Jack, like, Cactus Jack worked everywhere it was given a chance to work, right? Uh, I have no doubt it would have worked in WWE. But had it worked in WWE and I came out of the gate as Cactus Jack, I wouldn't have had the run as Mankind. That's right. There would have been no dude love. As we speak, I just saw there are plans uh, for Pops to do Mankind exclusive to one store, dude love, general, Cactus Jack exclusive so they're doing the three faces of foley in pops 22 years after i retired from full-time wrestling yeah so uh, the longevity oh it worked out it worked out but at the time it was like it's not broke why fix it so i could turn up the volume and uh, i could do a variety of different things uh character wise i'd shown that i could tell stories in um in ecw i'd shown i could cut promos in WCW, I'd shown I could work with the top guys and not be uh, and and not be overwhelmed psychologically because you're working with these guys. I think on my way, and I, I think I know on my way to that uh, flight uh, to Corpus Christi when I'd be going into a WWE venue for the first time since '86. Uh, you know, I think I le- I stopped doing the enhancement matches. After my match with uh, Kamala or Hercules aired, uh, so it had been 10 years since I'd been in a WWE venue, and I had to think to myself on the plane, I had to think of all the people I'd already worked with in WCW, including The Undertaker, 
Uh, and I had to remind myself that I was kind of a big deal, that this was not this was something that I had earned um, because I've seen guys come in who lose their mojo in um, in WWF. Sort of big fish, small pond. Yeah, sort yeah, of thing. and also you know you get on the wrong end of maybe two or three people that can really hurt you at that time. You know, I'm looking behind your uh, uh, over your shoulder at the Taz gear. Taz was a guy who you know when you see Taz in ECW with Bam Bam, you're like, what manner of human being is this? Yeah. You know, like he looked like a monster, and then when he came in, he looked like a man. And he never seemed to regain that mojo that he had in in ECW. I think he started with it with Kurt Angle, but very quickly it felt like they... Yeah, because he received this incredible response, bigger response than I got at the Garden when yeah. I did the uh, the match with, uh, with Triple H. Um, so he was there, and just a couple guys, I think there were a couple people behind the scenes who uh, cast out on him you know taz had asked uh uh if the fact that he was five seven was going to hurt him he said vince said no we're going to make that work for us i wonder what hunter said though because <laughs> as the rumor in innuendo goes he was not a fan and when he was the ecw champion and got pinned on smackdown by the wwf champion it was like okay well that's the end of taz and as a fan yeah, of taz, yeah that's yeah. the way i felt like man you just Beat him that easy with a pedigree, and that's not doing ECW or Taz any No, favors. no, it wasn't. It wasn't. He got on the wrong side of uh, the favorability war, uh, and within a few short time, he didn't look like the same guy. But that's all confidence. It's a matter of confidence, and it's really easy to lose it. It's really easy to lose it. Well, that for that reason, I'm kind of glad you didn't come in as Cactus Jack, because I almost wonder, given all the fun and crazy and sort of outside of the box stuff you had done. I, I don't know that I, I don't know that the company was ready and I don't know that I as a fan was ready for a whitewashed version of cactus Jack. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, Eddie Gilbert had a chance to go back to WCW at the same time I did in August of 1991. He didn't want to do it because he didn't want it to tarnish what he and I had done for uh, Joel Goodhart's tri-state wrestling. And I was willing to take the chance, and it paid off. I wish Eddie had done it, but he was so pure about, you know, his feelings about what we had accomplished were so pure, he did not want to go back there. And probably the fact that WWE had ownership, not just literally over the Mankind character, but they could say it was theirs. Yes. I could counter by saying, you guys gave me a mask and insisted I be dressed from head to toe in brown. Yeah. Right? So brown. Like, as our friend DDP would say, I went down to the ring with all the flash and dazzle of a UPS delivery truck. That's true. But that's all they did. They insisted that I have the mask and might be dressed in brown. And I don't know if that was a rib on me. At the time, they said, only Undertaker wears black. And then I sat back and watched as a lot of guys one came by in one. wearing black. But by that point, you know, it's like, well, maybe brown didn't work for the Friar Ferguson character, you know? And maybe you don't want to go down there looking like a six foot four turd, but uh, I we made it work. I couldn't have made it work without the Undertaker. I could not have made it work without uh, you know Jr. telling th those stories. So it was a it was a team effort in the sense that I had a great opponent and I had guys who put me over strong, you know, on TV as well. 
but um, the name mankind, uh, even the uh, the symbol on the back, uh, the backstory as the pianist who lost his fingers. They, I had a lot of creative freedom, a lot of creative freedom. And then I would look across the arena at people trying to uh, um, reinvent the circle when it came, the wheel when it came to Vader. So I was like, well, they're leaving me alone. And they're on his case about everything he does. And I feel like if they just left him alone, if he'd come in a year later when it was officially the Attitude Era, yeah, that uh, even Leon's... I'm talking about Leon because he was there a few months before I was with a big push, but to me a fatally flawed push in that they still believe that a, a monster heel should be a coward. There was still that old school, you got to be a coward because that's what people dislike. That's what gets heat. You know, I don't know what you know or don't know of it, but as a fan, I've always thought that match at SummerSlam with Vader and Sean, that changed yeah. it all for Vader. Would you agree? I was I was going to look at a YouTube clip that said the moment Vader Leon, Vader's push ended and they have Sean yelling at him move yeah yeah, yeah. Um, man yeah that was pretty that was pretty rough I was pretty rough and also you know I remember uh, remember watching uh, Leon and Sean doing a a, a house show match and uh, Steve Austin turns to me and goes hell Leon's really got that style down doesn't he. Now he's just got to lose 200 pounds to fit it because he wasn't Vader anymore. He was literally going down on everything Sean did because it was in his head. You know, he was just I, – I rode with him. Part of the reason I, I stopped riding. Uh, uh, last week we alluded to the popcorn yeah. caught up in the chest hair or the potato chips in the chest hair. Uh, the horrible singing. Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens. Ruining 70s classics for me. Um, but it was also because he was, he was pretty miserable. Yeah, he was pretty miserable, and it's like you want to be positive, and it's it was hard to be positive. He's Leon, you know. He was pretty having a bad experience. Yeah, he's having a bad experience there. You know, I mean, he wrestled Ultimate Warrior, and they want Leon running around the ring away from him. He gets in the car, he's like, "I'm Vader, and I'm running laps around the ring." And uh, going back to his big debut, he did get the Vader bomb on uh, Gorilla. Gorilla, but he also ran away. Uh, when the, the, the good guys came out yeah. for the save. He ran away, and they were big on running. And I just think they took something, like I said, that wasn't broke, like they did with Goldberg as well. And Taz. And, and Taz, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a simple formula, you know, and you don't, it doesn't make you uh, less creative if you stick to the formula and put your own touches on it. It should be this worked on this level, but when we put the rocket on his back, it's going to work on a grander level. And in the cases of those three guys, it didn't, did not. Yeah. Leon still went back and had made him at matches in Japan, like, but he just, it was in his head. The idea that I would come in with this character with the mask and the you know, dress made to Dome Brown, and I was going to become a bigger star than that guy who had already been the big star. Yeah. Leon was one of the top money makers in the company uh, and money producers. Um, he was making a good sum of money. He was able to get like I think seven hundred and fifty grand. Great for a matches match. though. But a match in Japan he had that was a build as being the real thing, and he worked that believable style so that to those forty six thousand people in that dome or wherever he had the match with um, the name will come to me. Uh, UWFI, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was it Takano or Takata? Yeah, uh, yeah. 
had a very realistic style. And if anyone looked and going, wait, that guy, that guy's going to be pushed bigger than that guy. And the rivalry with Undertaker will be, the characters clicked. You yeah. know, that was something that ca- the characters clicked. And if I uh, thought, if there was a strength, one of the strengths I had was that my char- my character clicked with a lot of people that I had good chemistry with a lot of people and the programs generally clicked so that I could be a lot easier for me to look at the ones that didn't click than the ones that did because it seemed like most most of them did. So in this first meeting with Vince, as he's sort of laying out what his vision is, you're pretty much asking why you can't be Cactus Jack. Yeah. You wrote in your book that he said, Vince tried to be comforting but failed miserably with his words. Quote, Mike, you've got to understand that the average fan sees wrestling as a glut of performers who seem to blend together. It's hard for our licensees to get behind our products and hard for us to push your characters if there's no distinction between the competition and us. We feel that with this unique character, we can market Mike and make Mike a bigger star than he's ever been. So he's doing his best to try to sell you. But also saying, hey, well, there was a cactus jack with our competition, and we need them to know this is a WWF figure, and it is his game. So I guess that makes sense. But it still has to be pretty heartbreaking to think you've done all of this, and now we have to start over. It was pretty heartbreaking. Uh, as I say, I'm smiling because I did just find out that Mankind's coming out as a pop. So uh, that was to think that that was 27 years ago, 20, I mean, 26 since I debuted, but 27 since we had that meeting. And he was right. They did market it as a character. Um, and they did very well with it, and they continued to do very well with it. And, and believe me, despite some of the uh, copyrights they let lapse, they don't let that one lapse. Because <laughs> they know that it was uh, – I found out I was like, I think I was like the sixth biggest money earner for WWE as far as – and that's crazy. A lot of it had to do with the Mankind title belt because that was a really expensive piece. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just you do the math by virtue of the fact they sold close to a 1,000 of them at 350 apiece. That's a lot of money coming yeah. in. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, I mean, I love the fact people love this character. I think they love it for the changes I made to it in 98, Largely, I think if it was just the 96, 97 Mankind and then he leaves or he stays that same character, I don't think we'd have the connection. But no doubt them forcing me into a different character combined with my willingness to try to take it to a different place, experiment, have the luxury of failing, which I don't think other people have like uh, we did in our era, that you could try stuff that was outside the box. You could take your swings, and if you missed, you, you were still going to get another at bat. You, you know, uh, So I love the baseball analogies, but I, I did go up there with the intention of swinging for the fences when it came to ideas, matches, stipulations, and uh, if I failed, I failed, but I wasn't going down without my best swings. So towards the end of the meeting, you write that J.J. Uh, Dillon comes in and hands you the contract um, part of you knowing that JJ had not necessarily his fault or his yeah, choice, yeah. but he had dismissed this. There had to be a little bit of satisfaction. Did you wink at JJ or was there an acknowledgement? Like, oh, I told you so. Well, keep in mind, it was still a contract for a guaranteed $750 a year sure. for five years. So I wasn't in a position where I was winking or nodding to anybody. I, w- I really wanted to prove myself. 
And uh, I wanted to do whatever I could to make that, that character successful. So how do you leave that meeting? Uh, you said that you didn't necessarily sign, so I'm assuming you would have said something like, well, let me look it over, review it, or yeah, what have you. Yeah, We thought about it. Again, I can't remember if I went immediately to the, you know, to Japan and then started examining the possibilities or whether I'd already signed when I went to Japan. But that's when I started believing that I might have something I could uh, uh uh, offer this character and I took a little bit of this you know the the uh, the Cactus Jack vocal mannerisms the quaking uh, and then I dialed it up to 11 so it was it was really yeah it was very much a character um, and then we we ended up creating layers for it as time went on but it was yeah, it was a work in progress you know I went to I did go to Memphis for a weekend um, I did their TV maybe three, four weeks before I even debuted for WWE, or maybe it was in between the Aldo Montoya uh, match and the official Bob Holly debut, and I was still finding my way around. Like I was still trying to figure out how to make it work. So uh, I think it wasn't until uh, that I actually made the debut that I, I, you know, shaved the divots out of my hair and decided mankind was going to pull his hair. Because uh, I'd been around people with um, uh, emotional difficulties. Yeah. Uh, from uh, you know, even back when I was a uh, a lifeguard, there was one of the uh, uh, one of the children had big tufts of hair missing because she was a hair puller, and uh, obviously that's a lot of pain for some someone who takes to pulling their own hair out is suffering emotionally on a big level. And I thought, well, yeah, that's what my guy is, right? So he would express frustration when he didn't get a pinfall by pulling out his hair. First of all, we we taped or glued some clips of hair to the uh, the mask. That didn't work. It didn't look realistic. And then I essentially would just – I had the long hair at the time. It wasn't uh, particularly well-treated. And so there were a lot of dry ends. And I found if I just pulled rapidly – you know, instead of yanking from the skull, if I pulled the hair itself, that after six or seven of these, I had... You know, visible, turn loose. Yeah. It was visible, and then it would float. And it was this great thing where the floating is gentle, like a butterfly in nature. But it's being done by a madman who just pulled out his own hair. So even as the hair was floating through the air, I was now back on the, back on the offense. So it's crazy to think you had all this detail, because as you write in your book... You called JJ and turned the deal down. Yeah, I did, yeah. So your wife's trying to convince you she doesn't do the best job because you still turn it down. What was the thinking at the time? You just had your heart set on Cactus Jack? I just believed in what I had done. Remember, I'm coming off my strongest character run ever in ECW. So it's working to um, the, the heel turn. When Paul asked me to turn heel, on paper, it doesn't seem like anybody's going to turn on anything except a turn from Cactus Jack, who's really a beloved part of that culture there. And when I do it, and I do it so effectively, and I do it largely through, you know, my uh, my promos and my lack of physicality, you know, when I started having the five-star stinkers refusing to wrestle, 
claiming I was going to have uh, the worst match I'd ever seen. There was nothing anyone could do about it because I was a former W, I was former WCW tag team champion. You know, really leaned heavily on that. You know, and I would say I'm up there with the Briscoes, the Funks, uh, the American Males. So comedy is the rule of three. So your first two are your really <laughs> legends, yeah. and then you're sinking in a little bit of heat. Sorry, Scotty, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I would use that for a little bit of uh, heat by putting them in there with the legends and then saying that because of my status as a tag team champion in WCW, I didn't have to work hard. And this was stuff nobody nobody ever you know, no. thought of. This. And I'm not sure it would work in any other place besides ECW. I'm not sure in today's day and age you could have a guy go out there and refuse to wrestle and have it get, go over well ratings-wise. And in and in ECW we weren't um, we weren't uh, we were not as dependent on the ratings to determine whether or not a show was going to. Uh, what, that was me searching for the right word, finding the right word, didn't thinking thinking it might get heat with people, and then I just used a word that wasn't as good but was not going to be controversial. <laughs> That's the thought process. Inside the mind of Mick Foley today. Uh, so JR calls you later. I, I'm, I'm curious. Was he hot with you? I he mean, wasn't hot. No, he wasn't hot. That's when we had a long talk. A long talk. And so probably the tour of Japan came after the conversation with Jim Ross. Because it was probably a two-hour talk. Think about what Jim's got to go through as head of talent relations. Because that's probably not the only two-hour talk he had that it's day. It's the worst job in wrestling. Uh, it's, and for Jim to be so highly regarded by everyone, even while holding that job, it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult to be appreciated and loved when you're doing that job. And he was. He was appreciated and loved. But it was still, man, it's a, t- it's, it's a tough job. And we did have that long talk because we had the history together. And he made me feel, if, I don't know if the quote, but I, at the end of that talk, he made me feel like that character had potential. That's probably when my wife started talking to me about the challenge of, you know, you're, you can do this. You know, you're capable of more than just Cactus Jack. Look where you've taken the character in the last year. You know, this is you and me feeling like I had more to offer. And... um yeah, uh, I would like to say that it was a big hit for me right away, but I, I hated it largely because it was so difficult to breathe. So I was about 270 at that time that I went in. And even though I was working hard and my cardio was good, I still need I need room to breathe, you know. I We all need to breathe. Without that, I'm going to, be, going to be working with The Undertaker. I'm going to be working with guys like Shawn Michaels faster much better athletes like i'll work hard i'll do my part on the cardio but i need some oxygen had you ever at any point worn a mask during a match i'd worn masks because i had been uh in continental maybe uh no not continental i'd done it on the independent scene a little bit because once in a while you know being masked was better than being nobody you could go as mr x and suddenly mean something I think I went over to Ecuador in 86 as one half of a mask. So you knew it was tough to breathe in. You knew it was, well, yeah, but the thing that made mankind tougher was that we had the, the leather straps yeah. around the nose. And also, even though the, the, the mouth had hinges, it still felt like, well, you got some leather obscuring it. It was, diffi- it was difficult. And I wrestled as uh, Gar- Gorgeous Gary Young and I actually won the tag team titles in 
uh, World Class Championship Wrestling as uh, a masked tag team. I can't remember. I can't believe I can't remember the name of it. Um, but the like the the rib was that I, it was me. I had the broken wrist. I had the cast. People know it's Cactus Jack. Uh, I think that was their way of getting me to work twice a night for the same pay because I never once questioned the seventy five dollar payoff. <laughs> That's the reason I thought it was Continental because I know back in the day you'd work a singles match, a tag yeah, match. Yeah, I, I did, but no. When I, when I was uh, under the mask, it was because I was when I worked twice because I was technically two different characters. And it wasn't Executioner, but it was something along those lines. Jeez, I'll have to text Gary and see what the name of our our championship tag team was. So you and Jim work out the deal, and uh, you're set to debut after WrestleMania, and, and this will allow you a chance to finish your your commitments in ECW in Japan. Um, how do you break the news to, to Paul, or did he already know? Because he's clearly tight with Bruce in that era. Yeah, I, th- I think I did tell him via phone call. How'd that go? My recollection is that Paul did not think WWE was going to do the right thing by me. That's my recollection. That uh, he did not feel like the potential for that uh, uh, series with The Undertaker was going to be as beneficial as I did. Now, keep in mind, I don't mind about, I don't care about losing. Uh, I thought all along that it was a short run. And that I would then go down the card, but I was I was going to be fine with that. You know, I, I thought I could prove myself. Um, I remember even at the uh, post mania party, which is always a big deal. You know, I've, I haven't been at one in ten years. Um, but talking, it was actually with Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, and he was like, "Well, what do you think is going to happen to you after this match?" And he kind of painted a, a picture that it probably wasn't going to be a Duke thought after your match with the Undertaker. Yeah, he was. He wasn't warning. He was trying to do me a favor. Um, Manager expectations. Yeah, maybe. Uh, not to expect too much out of this. Um, but man, uh, you know, it, it, the the next day after Mania. Now, can I take you back to the name, the revelation of the name? Because I sure. Think that's a yeah, good let's story. do it. And also the fact that I didn't even know what they'd settled on as far as a name until it was announced that day with, uh, with uh, against Bob Holly. So I had been told my name. There was a woman who worked in creative, and she would go to the uh, – uh, she went with me uh, to the fifth floor of Stanley Sherman. Stanley Allen Sherman was the mask maker. When I get to New York City, I think there's going to be a big neon sign saying "Masks are us," you know. And instead, it's the fifth floor of a five-floor walk-up. You know, you're getting a workout, and it's just a gentleman. hadn't seen him until uh, I did. um, hadn't seen him since early '96 until I did uh, Most Wanted Treasures with WWF, and they didn't air the part that Stanley did, but they had him come in, and he talked about how. You know, collectors would ask him for things, and that's how he ended up locating uh, one of the original Mankind shirts, of which there were two. So uh, one gentleman no longer has it, and I had to make a personal visit to his house to watch in your house. I watched in your house, in his house, in order to, you know, for him to even part with it. It was worth $7,500 at that point. But one of the, the women who used to drive me to Stanley's place revealed to me the name not realizing she wasn't supposed to so i already had like one or two days to come up with something different 
And so when Vince looked at me and said, have they told you your name? I chose to say no. I don't know why I said uh, that I, I It felt like a big deal to him the way he said yeah, it up. Yeah, like he wanted, he goes, in this business, we've had crushers. We've had destroyers. We've had executioners. But we've never had a mutilator. And he gets that, you know, the bass in his voice. Mutilator. That's what you are. And then he gives me the name Mason. He alludes to the Manson name, but tells me, you know, that uh, we can't go there. And I thought, I don't want to go there. I, you know, I was very uncomfortable with being Cactus Jack Manson. I did it because I really had no other choice, I felt. Mason the Mutilator. And I think it's one of the worst things I've ever heard. It sounds to me like something that would be in a bootleg version of an old fish card game. You know, it just sounds awful. Um what do you think, pal? And I said, oh, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. But what if? And that was the three biggest words. But what if? Instead of being Mason the Mutilator, I was Mankind the Mutilator. He says, I don't think I understand. I said, well, this way, when they're talking about the future of mankind and the destruction of mankind, it means two different things. You know, it's talking about me and the people. And he's writing all this stuff down on a yellow legal pad. You're back in his office. Back in his office, yeah. This is where I'm starting to get a feel for what the character could be. Um, And that's why I said uh, Mandible Claw. Uh, He writes it down. Uh, Separate entrance and exit music. You named it Mandible Claw? uh, Yeah, that's the name it was. I mean, I didn't rename it, you know, until I I became Dude Love and temporarily used the love handle. Which is is a great name. name, All-time great name. We just thought you you can't – he shouldn't have the same finishing move as Mankind does. But the love handle was a great name. So good. um, And Vince started writing down all of these things. I just I put my best foot forward. I believed that the experience I had and the 11 years I had made me uh, – I'd earned the right to pitch ideas. I didn't feel overwhelmed, you know, even in the presence of this larger-than-life character and um, did not know what they were accepting or taking. Uh, even when I got to WrestleMania, it's not as big – it wasn't as big then as it is now, but it was still big. Yeah. Still big to the point where they'd put you out for four or five nights. And I get my information package, and it just says Mutilator. No Mason, no Mankind, just Mutilator. Open up my information packet, and because I'm debuting the day after Mania, they don't have me on anything. I'm not even at the, uh, I'm not even at the Hall of Fame induction, which was a much smaller affair then I think you know, they did it in like a you know a ballroom, yeah, banquet room. Yeah, yeah. Even in '97, when I was part of it, they did it in a banquet room. Uh, so '96, I'm just sitting in my hotel room. I'm not spending money. I'm looking longingly at Disneyland, out over the parking lot. As I mentioned last week, I eventually did fold. Bruce had talked to me about uh, revealing the gimmick. Of man, you know this character because they'd already said it was mankind, you know. On the so people, no, they didn't. Hold on a second. When I hold on, I did not know the name of the character until I wrestled Aldo, because by the time uh, by the time I wrestled Bob, my videos had been showing, and the name was mankind. Uh, but yet, when I got to when I got to California. The package said, you're looking up dates. 
Uh, <laughs> it's hard to get all the dates correctly, right? No, all good. So it's probably about uh, 10% of the audience who's already shooting me down. Like, we know better. Than, we, it was this date. Like, uh, it becomes difficult after so many years. But there was definitely, it was either the time with Aldo or the time with uh, uh, Bob where I walked out not sure of what my name was going to be. Probably when it was, even though I was, you know, man, they were mankind, Mutilator was on my package, and it wasn't until Howard Finkel said, coming down the aisle, Mankind, no Mutilator, um, no Mason, and I end up beating Bob with the Mandible Claw, and in comes the gentle piano music. And Vince asked me why the second set of music. I said, because I feel like the only thing that would soothe this guy's heart is the sounds of human suffering. And and that was the one thing I did borrow or stole from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Mask, to me, never looked like Lecter's mask, and I never thought it was based on that because it wasn't. I think, think people just say that because of the bars. The bars, the yeah. Mouth. He had the bars over the mouth. I had the leather straps. So, so I guess if, if enough people see it and they think it's there, it's there. But I never felt it. I was never going for a Lecter feel except try to duplicate the peace of mind he feels after he's just killed two or three human beings in brutal fashion in the jerry-rigged jail cell in, uh, in memphis at the airport hangar which is just an incredible scene um so i did like the idea that after he'd caused this carnage that he could be <sighs> calmed down by the sound of beautiful music and he's at peace that's that's, that's so what you i wanted. said vince said why the second set of music so did you work that out with creative services he wasn't involved in that piece? no no he was that was only to vince i didn't i didn't when it came to creative it was what the outfit looks like what the mask looks like what the name once we got the name they were out of that they were out of the equation uh let's talk about your first visit with creative services you're okay. driving to new york city to get fitted for the mask and you're met with changes from the original pitch and drawing. At this point, still, it doesn't have a name, but the mask is different. It's evolved. Yeah. yeah. Uh, were you involved in any of those changes, or were you more dictated to, hey, this is the one now? Once it changed from the metallic look to the uh, leather look, uh, then I, did, I didn't have any say in that. That was because Stanley uh, Sherman felt like the uh, metal mask, it's not practical, and it's really going to bind me it's not going to move with my face so when i did go in there uh very few people know especially because i just you know i've i've ordered two different masks from two different parts of the world so i can do my cameos as man in a mankind mask which is what i am so uh even if they own the copyright i'm just man in a mankind mask right uh but these guys do a great job and their leather isn't made to fit the contours of my face stanley's was um, so I had to do the plaster casting, you know, with the, we got the photos of me with the, what uh, month do you think that was? This was de probably December of 95. I say December of 95 because in those photos I was clean shaven. And the only time I was clean shaven was when I was in ECW and I was systematically removing everything the fans liked about me. I say. So that was the only reason that the Cactus Jack showed up without the beard. Because I was systematically removing everything you liked. And I would later go on to do that as Dude Love. Sure. Uh, put in the front, the, the top front teeth. Um, and we, we did some pretty creative videos with Paul. 
even when I was there for uh, at American Adventures outside Atlanta from Noel's birthday party, you know, we're filming little vignettes on the the crazy bus where I'm showing <laughs> visitors to guests my ear you know and oh my god this guy's thing you know, i turn around yeah that's hardcore and i'm with my wife and she's putting me over uh so that's why i was clean shaven and that's why i know that uh we went for the original mask fitting in december of 95 so when you leave after figuring out what your new mask is going to look like you head to a seamstress uh and then you're back to stanford again and i guess that's where you and vince talk about the mandible claw but when you're with the seamstress do you know exactly? I mean, did the look change at all? And you mentioned earlier the symbol on the back. Tell us the story of how the symbol came to be. Yeah. You know, when, uh, they gave me the parameter, which is I'm in, I'm in brown. 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 Except for the black boots. And uh, when Bruce heard that I was wearing the Mankind gimmick, it was actually just me trying the boots out, trying to get comfortable in the boots, having a match with the boots Did on. they dictate that you needed the lifts, or is that a Foley call? I, that was a, I wanted the lifts because I wanted to be closer to the Undertaker's height. Like I said, I was a legit 6'4", and at 6'6", six, six is when you start becoming a big dude, right? You know, there's a lot of... It's That's like, the Hulk Hogan, Billy uh, Gunn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a bruiser bedlam who used to talk about uh, being a five-plate man. He'd say, the city's full of four-plate men. Five plates would be five, 45 plates. City's, city's full of four-plate men. Five-plate man. So the, the the city was full of... I don't know where I'm going with this analogy. I have no idea where I'm... I refresh my memory. So we're talking about <laughs> the idea that you're going to be in brown, but now you're wearing lifts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. City's full of six-foot-four men. Six foot six. Like this is, you know, there's, there's a definite six three, six two to six four. You're tall, uh, so tall that, you know, he stands about six foot four. All the downtown ladies call him treetop lover. This is bad, bad Leroy Brown. Six four, to me, great songwriter, Jim Croce. Six four doesn't qualify you as a treetop lover. Six foot six does. <laughs> and I felt like I needed those two extra inches. And then I realized after walking around, I attend a couple concerts that way. It's kind of cool to be six six, but I realize it's really difficult to move. I was going to say, from a wrestling standpoint, you yeah, roll your ankle, right? Uh, yeah, it's going to damage your ankle. You can't move around as well. WWE ring is challenging enough uh, without lifts on. And I realized, well, they didn't hire me because I was six, six. You know, I had the potential to be six six. They hired me thinking I was five ten, I think. Um, and so I was like, no, I'm going to give up. I sent it back to Bucky Palermo, the referee outside of Pittsburgh, who did a lot of the boots at that time. And he took. So those. the lifts were built into the boot. They were built into the boot, like Herman Munster uh, or members of Kiss, and then we had them removed. And then I did, I did wrestle with the non-lift boots for that last match with Mikey. So I'm, I'm just curious from a design standpoint of the actual gear. Because we're talking about you visiting a seamstress. Yeah. WWE's footing the bill for this? They are. They bought, they purchased the, or maybe they took it out of my check. I can't remember. I can't remember if I paid for the first two shirts and two masks, whether they took it out of my check, whether it was given to me. I don't, don't I was know. just getting to the point of how would you have, I guess, how, how was it communicated to him that you wanted lifts? You told WWE? Or Probably. You, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see. And when it came to the symbol on the back, you know, I had, uh, 
come up with the idea that uh, you know the leather around. We didn't. We then we real, later realized real leather wasn't the best idea, and the, the subsequent mankind shirts, which I think there was only another two or four, were not made out of uh, leather. But I just looked at the back, and I thought, that's a lot of brown there. It's a lot of empty brown. And I asked about a symbol, and I just basically combined, uh, um, uh, and uh, what is the name of the, the type of cross? Irish cross? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish cross with an X. Okay. Um, and it looked mysterious. Like, it wasn't like people, well, that's an Irish cross with an X. It looked like something... That you made up. Completely new, unusual, a little bit foreboding. And uh, there were some things where, I, I mean, I had some other ideas. Uh, and then we came out with the loose-fitting shirt. Still going to show off the Foley guns, right? Uh, I worked hard on those guns, although they never really uh, never indicated, the look never indicated that I did. But I did work hard uh, to get those 17-inch pythons as looking as good as they could. And so with the leather and the symbol, a little symbol here on the left breast, big symbol on the back, brown spandex, black boots. Yeah, I was uh, I was ready for my premiere. What about the actual claw, the actual apparatus you wore? Yeah, yeah. Some the they made me that in um creative. They gave me the the the, the uh thing I would wear. Did you have a different vision for it? No, that was that was I was good with that. Yeah, I was I was good with that. If you could change one thing about your home, what would it be? A new kitchen, a new master bath, maybe put in a pool. What if you could do it with no money out of pocket and cheaper monthly payments? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you can even skip your next two house payments. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender, savewithconrad.com. So when you're meeting with Vince and you're having the discussion about the claw, I think you wrote in your book, it's around this time that you pitched the idea for two sets of music. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, had you said, Hey, I want it to sound something like this yeah. or did you? Okay. Yeah. A gentle piano. Um, I mean, I, I if they come out with strings, I would not have cared, but it was basically gentle, soothing music, uh, using the piano and that would harken back to that love of music I had before I put it, took a hammer to, to my fingers. I think it was a ball peen hammer just for the sake of... Uh, Did you work with Jim Johnston on the music process? No, Jim came up with that on his own. and uh, it Home was run. Home run up until I became a babyface. Yeah. And now it's dreary music. It was, And it doesn't have a Pavlovian moment where people are going <gasps> to catch their breath and realize yes. it. It's so it There's no gong. Yeah, it didn't lend itself to a pop. It lent itself a uh, feeling of football. It was eerie and creepy. Yeah, though. which is what we wanted. It's not what I wanted by the time that character started lightening up, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and then it kind of becomes counter. I think they actually uh, sped up the cadence or sped up the music when I became uh, uh, a babyface. Um, but it was still kind of dreary music to come out to as a good guy. So. It- this is all starting to come together, but you've not said yet how you came up with the name Mankind or the idea. It was just having my back against the wall, thinking that Mason was the worst name you I'd ever You did it heard. that split second? Uh, well, I, did it, I didn't do it at the, ta- at the table. I'd already thought of the name Mankind. Oh, that's right, because Man- you yeah, had heard it before. Yeah, it, it just came to me. I did not borrow it from anywhere, uh, not that I know of. Uh, it just was like... 
you know, you're brainstorming. What could I be? You know, it's got to have an. I felt like it had to have an M in it. You know, the man, just mankind, and it just struck me. That's a great first name. Uh, it's different. It felt like it needed to have an M because of the alliteration. Yeah, M- mankind the mutilator. Because yeah. you knew Vince like that. Yeah, you're not going to be Joe the mutilator, right? You know, it's going to be if he had his heart set on Mason, it's got to be an option that he would be predisposed to liking. And I thought that was you know an M an M name. Yeah. So uh, eventually, you get called into creative services. And Debbie Bon, uh, what's her name? That's it. I can't remember her last name. Uh, uh, Bonazino. Yeah, that would be it. There That's the one. Debbie's the one. Oh, should I be saying this? Putting yeah. her in hot water. She is the one who revealed to me the Mason name. Okay. Yes. Um. So, what's your actual contractual status when you leave that meeting? At this point, you've returned the contract. Maybe set the wrong one accidentally, or does yeah. that happen after the fact? Conrad, I honestly don't know. I think by that point I probably returned it because we were getting down to the nuts and bolts of it. I was just curious if you were maybe just – let me just see how this goes before I commit. No, You no. were committed by Yeah, I was committed by that point. I mean that's part of what I talked to with my wife. I think I was 30 at that point. Yeah, I was 30 years old. Felt like I had another four or five good years left in me. And uh, felt like I needed to know what it was like to be there. Where, where did the have a nice day thing come from? That's from Jim Ross. Uh, we do the first uh, when we're going. He was in the, he was in uh, the pseudo dungeon that had been built. And I was supposed to do a quick. It wasn't one of the sit down ones. It was a, a quick one. And he just came up off the top of his head, you know, say, so have a nice day. And then I ran with that. You know, it became, who knew, you know, 22, that was 22 years later. I'm still saying have a nice day. Your first vignette airs on Superstars on January 6th. Um, When this airs, and now it's not in a quote-unquote dirt sheet, but the world is watching. Yeah. Does your phone light up with guys in the business? What is this? Um, yeah, because I wouldn't have found out through text messages and there was no, uh, Twitter at that time. There were some people, I I think Shane may have chimed in that it wasn't a good, uh, (laughs) there were some people predicting that it was going to be the death of that character. You know, Goldust had come in with a bold new vision for his character. Some people thought that was going to be the death of the character. It worked out. And he made it work. You know, he made it work because of his commitment. Well, I mean, listen, if if The Undertaker had come along with anybody else in any other era, it would not have worked the way it did. Like, right, the yeah, guy makes yeah, it work. Yeah, the guy makes it work. Yeah. So once, the, you know, when The Undertaker got behind that, I had a lot of, you know, I got a lot of guys in my in my corner. I've got Undertaker. I've got Bruce. I've got Jim Ross. Cornette. Cornette, yeah. So a lot of people, Vince Russo is a big uh Big believer in what I can do. We haven't talked about him yet. Yeah. He's starting to uh, work his way up the ranks in the WWF at the time, and he's gone from, quote-unquote, just being a magazine writer to more and more he's becoming involved and creative and being a part of the process. Because Vince wrote out the original promos uh, that I largely rejected and rewrote myself. For the Mankind Vignettes. For the Mankind Vignettes, yeah. Russo wrote them. Yeah, he wrote the original ones. And then I turned it. What in. didn't you like about him? 
there was some talk at Dar- Barney the Dinosaur. Uh, I just it, it didn't feel it didn't, wasn't as dark as you didn't wanted. feel like a good fit. Uh, I wanted something that felt real to me, and that uh, um, Mary Shelley meets Tori Amos. Uh, you wanted to be more haunting. Yeah, it was haunting. Yeah, she's got a voice. I think it'd be described like ethereal. Is that the way you pronounce it? Like otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even people who are not fans of her music, I think, can acknowledge that there's a unique quality and a haunting feel. And uh, I wanted that, and it inspired me. These vignettes, how many of these do you remember recording? Was it one at a time over the series of a weekend, or what was that like? I think we banged out uh, four or five in one day. So it was Kevin Dunn shooting them. He was like, I like it. It's got an eerie feeling. It was good. Uh, you know, I can read people pretty well, even at that age. You know, I'd been around. I, I didn't think they were paying look, lip service to me. I just did, didn't dawn on me. Howard Finkel was another guy who was in my corner. Um, was there did, a producer besides Kevin Dunn? I don't remember. I'm sure there was, but Kevin was the main guy. Where did the uh, George the Rat come in? They wanted uh, they wanted uh, that rodent. They thought it'd be creepy, and uh, Corny's wife, you know, had a couple pets uh, that fit the bill. So he brought George in. I'm not crazy about. It. I love chipmunks and squirrels. And, uh, most of the rodent a family. Rat's pet is yeah, weird. yeah, yeah. It's got the big tail, but there was that was not going to be an issue, right? It was not uh, for a guy who had. Uh, you know, made his reputation in high school for eating worms. Having a rat climbing over me was not going to be an issue. Talk to me about, you know, the the bowels of the building. And, I mean, that became sort of the home of yeah, Manhattan. Yeah. Was that always going to be the plan or just evolved into that? Well, I think once they establish him in the dungeon, yes. he's in a dark place. Uh, and so I, I, knew, I would retreat to the boiler room anyway because this didn't feel like a perfect fit to me. There were times when Cactus Jack could get dark and did get dark, like with the Kane Dewey promo, but this was going to be a guy who, like, dwelled in darkness in my head, you know? And maybe it sounds a little self-important, but I really felt like, all right, this is not a natural fit. I have to get into this character like a method actor would. No, that's not arrogant. It is acting. yeah, Yeah, so I was putting that mask on five or six hours before I went out. I was retreating to dark places mentally and physically, and that I would come out like an hour before, maybe maybe more, but it felt like I would come out an hour before. We were usually the semi-main event, so I had a chance to like stretch out and you know do some like calisthenics, so that when I hit the uh, when I hit the ring, I was ready. And there was something I would do with the original series of matches with The Undertaker. And this is, you know, we all borrow from people that we ad- admired and looked up to. And this is something Chris Candido did with me when I was working for Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which is he wouldn't just bail out and slink away. He would literally run away, mm-hmm. sprinting run away. I think I may have accentuated that because when I was running for the hills, I had bigger arenas to run in. You know, when when I was working with Chris, it was like Peel's Palace in Erlanger, Kentucky, you know. Yeah. And, and some, so now I've got these 17,000-seat arenas. So when The Undertaker would get the better of me the first time and I took off, I had the Forrest Gump. You know, I had the knees up there. I had the arms running like this. And then I would get to what I thought was a safe spot. And I would look around. This is, this is prior to having Paul Bearer. 
And then we upped that ante when we got to Kuwait and we worked in the National Football State or Soccer Stadium. And now it's like a 117-yard run. Like, I'm going to do it like I'm Ben Johnson. Like, am I safe? Is he only 75 yards, 80 yards away from me? And I like the idea that someone could be scared. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about uh, last week, the difference between Shane McMahon's fearlessness and the courage of Mick Foley is that Shane wasn't afraid of things, anything. I was, but I found ways to do them. So I like the idea of somebody who was terrified by almost everything. Uh, I thought that made him more dangerous, that he was always going to be perpetually worried and scared and then would act in the face of that. And that, uh, uh, you know, creating uh, human suffering did put his mind at ease. It's uh, it's so fun to to go back and think about the genesis of this whole character, and I'm excited for us to break down the pieces of ECW where you had a little bit of an overlap where they knew that you were going to be doing the yeah. character, but nobody knew what it was. But uh, your uh, your lawsuit did make the Observer, by the way. Oh, it did, um, huh? So that was that was <laughs> at least out there. But uh, that Corpus Christi match was March 10th. Uh, that you had that dark match to sort of get used to the character. Uh, take me through that dark match where you finished up with ECW straight to Corpus Christi on no sleep. Yeah. It's not really a tryout match you're signed, but boy, Vince is watching that 13-inch monitor, and if it doesn't go well, who knows? Um, when you come through the curtain, how did you think you were received? I thought I was received pretty well. It seemed like it was received pretty well. Um, sometimes guys have these persona changes. So like moon dog back in the day, tried to be a part of demolition, right? Didn't work. Was there a concern? What if they start yelling cactus or does that even cross your mind? It, it crossed my mind in ECW strongholds and in the Northeast where the cactus, you know, the more people gravitated towards being heel fans. I, I don't want to, uh, I know you're a proud, uh, um, Alabama resident, but let's just say uh, in Huntsville, the dudes were still over, as in the dynamic dudes. You like so, where they were still that traditional base that got behind traditional baby faces. Whereas in the Northeast, it's like, dude, you got to show me something different, right? So there was a night and day difference. I mean, it reached the point with the dynamic dudes in uh, the Northeast that uh, fans actually body painted uh, the words. Uh, Shane sucks Johnny's, you know, and yeah. and what was really inspiring to me is that a few of the body painters were willing to be the blank spaces yeah. between the words. That's commitment. It is. That's commitment. So while the dudes are being hated in some parts of the uh, many parts of the country, they were still over in Huntsville, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give them props for that. Give them props for that. Um, so it was worried that more so in the ECW strongholds that people would be chanting for cactus, uh, or at least know who I was. And that would, uh, look, man, I, I love, I love all fans. Right. And, uh, I, we're all smart fans to some degree. That doesn't mean we have to be snarky fans. Yes, I agree. And so for example, when Bray Wyatt came out and fans were chanting Husky Harris, it's, yeah, it's like, awful. Are you guys, do you realize you are putting this man's livelihood in jeopardy because you are going to tor possibly torpedo 
a premiere because you want people to know that you know, like, please, you have to certain, but be a part of the, be a part of the fun. You know, that you do a wink and a nod, but just chanting Husky Harris to show you could do it. Man, that I'm glad that they didn't pull the plug, but the plug could have been pulled. You know, Vince could have said, this will never work. Um, I mean, think about The Rock's first, you know, year oh, yeah, or so. That yeah. was really rough. And what if, you know, when Stone, when Stone Cold came out, if people were still chanting Stunning, Stunning or Ringmaster? Yeah. They've got to have a chance to grow and evolve. Right. And I think for the most part, we, we do that as fans. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate when that's not the case, but it was it was worried that I was going to get that type of reaction in Philadelphia for mind games, for example. Yeah, so I had to come out and cut a, a a promo on the fans that I would never go back to that boiler room. Uncle Paul, please don't make me go back to that boiler room, and that seemed to work. Um, but by and large, uh, when I came back, the agents were complimentary. I think uh, uh, Chief J. Strongbow saw what I was kind of doing with the the walk, and uh, he suggested uh, him and George, or George Steele suggested putting a lift in one shoe to the accentuate limp. the limp. And I didn't do did not do that. It would have made running and walking and all that difficult. Um, but they were they suggested things, uh, but pretty much left me alone to create. Um, I look at the first promo photo of me as mankind, and it's against a green background. I'm kind of like mm-hmm. grabbing my my you know my my uh, my mask, and it's clear I didn't know what that character was going to be yet. And uh, we really started, you know, I mean, I put a lot of work into it. The company obviously did their part with Undertaker doing more than anybody by seeing something in that character that he wanted to work with, but they left me alone by and large to grow. So that I went from just hating, hating that uh, mask, uh, especially um, when I did that run-in with The Undertaker. And I couldn't appreciate whether or not it had gone right because, hey, you're so nervous before you do these. These yeah. are life-changing angles. I'd have to compare it to the way I felt when I was inside the giant gift box in uh, September of 1991 in Macon, Georgia. I came out of there literally saying prayers because I've got a small infant child, you know, I've got a wife, and I think we I don't, we hadn't purchased a home yet, but uh, I had responsibilities. And now another life-changing event. I'm about to attack The Undertaker. I came out of there. I couldn't breathe. Um I was so blown up just from doing that one angle, mainly due to nerves. And I remember talking to my wife. It was on a it was on a payphone, not a cell phone, and just saying, "Maybe I can do this for two or three months and become Cactus Jack." I just, I just, I, I hated it, hated it. And it was mostly the mask and the breathing. The mask and the breathing that I hated about it, and it and it was uncomfortable on my head. Um, and I, again, there was a big part of me that still didn't think Cactus Jack was broken, didn't need to be fixed. Um, but we, I stuck with it, and I started seeing the results on a nightly basis and started seeing that I could, even before I realized that I thought that there was a, uh, any chance that Cactus Jack would come back, especially at Madison Square Garden, in front of my parents in the same building I grew up hitchhiking to and taking trains to and seeing Snooka dive off the top of the cage, even before all that, I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work. 
I'm going to get to find that dark place to retreat to, which turns out to be the bowels of the building, the boiler room. I'm going to work on the rocking back and forth. I'm going to, going to do as much as I can to distance this character from uh, from Cactus Jack. Kept some of the same moves, the the elbow, uh, flying elbow, double. I wanted to ask about that. As the Mankind character, are, are you – we know you've discussed the finisher, but – do they give you any sort of, hey, we would like for your style to look like this or these signature moves? Is there any of that talk of what to borrow or what to keep from Cactus Jack? I knew it was going to be limited, fairly limited. And this is where, uh, man, you know, some, I think a lot of guys in the business could benefit from having, you know, being reined in. So, for example, when I do the live shows, I thought at first I benefited by the fact that I can talk about anything. You know, I can reference uh, popular culture. I can talk about politics. I can you know, do observational. I can do anything. And then once I realize, wait a second, like, you know, this is the, the strong point. And I went to see Willie Nelson perform at the Westbury Music Theater, uh, which now has a corporate name. Uh, and I would either see people on their way up or their way down right? Uh, or plateaued. You didn't see people at the top of their career. So I'd seen some acts to me that looked like they'd rather be anywhere else but on stage. And then I see Willie Nelson. I thought, oh, man, there's no place this guy would rather be tonight than on that stage. And that's when I realized he's he's jamming. He's not just playing note-by-note note renditions. So I thought, if I can go on stage and jam and take stories that may already be known, but find ways to make them fun and different and interesting. Now I'm not just a guy reciting golden oldies. Now I'm Willie Nelson telling wrestling stories. Um, so I, I I have no idea what that has to do with your previous statement. Uh, no, I just, I, I just wanted to know, you know, move-wise. <laughs> oh, they... yeah, yeah. So in other words, by limiting what I could do, what I limiting the parameters – it made what I did much stronger. And I think a lot of wrestlers would, you know, would improve if they kept that. I've got this move. This works with the character. Anything outside of the this move set doesn't mean you can't throw in a, a surprise move. Undertaker doing the dive once a year means so much more than Undertaker every doing, night. The, doing the dive every night. Uh, so when I realized that right, I'm going to stick to certain moves, and they're going to be kind of realistic, and there's going to be at that nowadays you can't do the clawing and the because it's seen as lazy stuff. It's not seen as good work. But when you had a character that was based in brutality, and you wanted your face in those shots, and you want the foreboding, almost horror movie shot. Here comes a bad guy from behind. He's coming in slow. You know, we know that. For example, the best way to pull a sock out of your waistband to use it is from here to here. But that's not what we do. We go from here to up here, right? And now I'm going to see. This is Baron Mikel Cicluna, who a friend of mine, John Arizzi, referred to lovingly as the fakest of all the wrestlers because all his stuff looked hokey. But when you go for the foreign object, you're thinking logic. Okay, this is something I could be disqualified for. Better be discreet. I, 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 yeah, better be discreet. That's where you're going to make the here. But that's not what we do in wrestling. We come up here down around boom pull it out here's the reveal and so you know our our motions are grand especially you're, pl you're playing to the worst yeah seat. yeah and especially before the days of high def and especially uh, you know a lot of companies still counted on that hard camera shot 
Bill Watts came into uh, WCW, and he didn't want to see guys calling spots. Thought you minimize that by concentrating on the hard camera shot, but then you make your entire product boring at the risk of somebody finding out guys call spots. Yeah. Uh, kind of self-defeating. Um, but you were, in a lot of cases, still playing not only the worst seat in the house, but, you know, the moves were grand. Vince is still grand, right? Oh, yeah. There's no Because he's still playing, you know. Uh, I, I and one of Even my, his walk. Even the walk, right. The walk became more and more exaggerated yeah. as he went, right? Because uh, at first it was just like a little pep in his step. And then it got to the point where it was hard to keep a straight face yeah. when he came down because it was so ridiculous. So I compared and contrasted my experiences working on camera with Mr. McMahon and working on camera with Willem Dafoe. Wow. And I was looking at Willem Dafoe do these 20 takes, and I was like, but he's not really doing anything. And then you see it back on camera, and it looks like, He's got this entire, you know, blend of facial expressions and and who's to say that doesn't work because it does, but you also can't argue that Vince McMahon doing the big gulp of fear doesn't work because it does. If any actor tries on the big screen to portray fear the way that Vince did, that's likely his last acting role for a yeah. long time, but it works so well. Mm-hmm. We are still finding ways to balance the, you know, the uh, acceptance of the high definition and not having to be so much larger than life with the fact that ultimately it comes down to the biggest stage of them all and you are still selling to the, to the worst seat in the house. But a lot of those movements you know, are going to be grand because – uh, you know, I wanted that still to be the presentation of not just a realistic wrestling match, but something of a horror movie come to life. Yeah. I, I want to circle back to something you said a minute ago about wrestlers today. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that a lot of those guys are more interested in showing you what they can do? And it's the almost uh, just because you could maybe doesn't mean you should sort of deal. Maybe it doesn't fit the character, but they want to show you what they're capable of. And it does feel like at times you watch matches and as the night goes on, some of the guys are playing, can you top this? It does. It does. And uh, I think some people out of means feel like it's a necessity to do that. And this goes back to what we were discussing last week, that uh, sometimes it's in the best interest of a card to not have a five-star match. Right. Sometimes... uh, you maybe you know it doesn't have to be the same guy every night unless it's a guy who accepts that that's his lot in life. I'm going to come out there. I'm going to have a pretty good match, but I'm going to give people a chance to catch their breaths for the um, semi main main event and the main event. And again, if you're just keeping it, whether it's in fourth gear all the time or fifth gear, or whether I use the volume analogy uh, that once you've you listened to three hours of all music on uh, on eleven, if you're Volume goes up to 11, like Nigel Tufnels did. <laughs> then it's hard to kick it. You know, it's hard to have anything special left in reserve. Whereas if you're toying with that thing and bringing it down to three for a ballad and up to six for something else, and then I love this song, boom, let's turn this son of a gun up to 11. I think uh, I think some wrestling shows are trying to stay on 11 at all times, and it prevents the overall enjoyable viewing experience that makes people want to come back for more. And there's a lot of guys who kept it in fourth gear who had really long, prosperous, consistent careers. So yeah, not yeah. a bad thing. Right, right. But I think every I think uh the bookers of the card 
owe it to the fans to say, okay, Joey, I know what you can do. Plays, let's ah, do this, you know, let's keep those spots in check for the good of the card. We This is the night where we want people to take a break. We're taking an intermission, come back. Just, you know, first match, same thing. Have a good match. Uh, set the tone. Don't try to steal the show. But if unless someone was telling you otherwise, and I'm saying this as a guy who was penalized by some promoters for not doing what they wanted because what I wanted was to steal the show. Do you think some of that started with ECW? I well, saw guys bleeding in the first match. And yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I talked about uh, Joel Goodhart uh, talking me to me and Eddie Gilbert about having the barbed wire match. And I said, okay, Joel, but uh, if we're going to do this match, let's not have many matches bleeding, and, and we want to be the first match. Okay, you got it. And then uh, I'm trying to get in that zone, and I see guy after guy coming back in the first match bleeding. And I look out, what the heck's going on? Is it the last blood battle royal. 30 guys. <sighs> 29 of them are going to be bleeding. It kind of defeats the purpose and the shock and awe of being that first guy to get color. Has kind of been greatly, uh, you know, watered down. Yeah, yeah, watered down. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, ECW pushed that. Uh, but but uh, Goodhart's promotion before that did. Uh, Japan was always known as the play where you work hard, you work stiff, you know, strong style. But they had their haha matches. Yeah, uh, they would get them in there, and the fans there were so knowledgeable and respectful that they completely accepted some of the older guys in a match that they knew was going to be fun. Psst. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than twenty carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. Could you have imagined when you signed your deal with the WWF in late 95 or whatever that you would have ever been portraying a comedy figure? (laughs) Because it's so opposite Cactus Jack. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's hard to imagine that one day you'd make sock puppets. Cactus Jack, there was a little humor. Some of the promos Cactus there Jack. There was some were, inside, yeah. you know, yeah. innuendo. Uh, even the the birthday, uh, you know, the birthday party for Abdullah the Butcher. Yes. It was me and Abdullah having a birthday party for Sting. And uh, Paul Heyman gave me the key line in here, which is – and then also I, I had been under – you know, Paul's uh, Paul was there. He was this pre ECW is ninety one, um, but we go out there with a birthday cake, and I'm going to sing Happy Birthday to You. And it was you know the cactus ninety one cactus jack. I think I would argue ninety one. I don't know he had a good, but ninety one coming in strong there or ninety five ECW uh, slash IW Japan. They were the best versions of Cactus Jack. Um, 91, you know, happy. And I've got Abdullah. He's eating a cake. Uh, I believe he's eating it without utensils. You need Abdullah. Happy birthday to you. It sounds a little mankindish, but Cactus was a little mankind. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Stinger. Happy birthday to you. So it's kind of a comedic setting, singing happy birthday. Abdullah's eating a cake, and Jim Ross goes, That's really nice, Cactus, but it's not Sting's birthday. And when I know that. Don't you think I know that? 
I know it. It's, 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 I said it's, but I missed Sting's last birthday. So it's very important that we celebrate Sting's last birthday now because Sting's last birthday was Sting's last birthday. And so now we've made people laugh, we've cut them off, and we've somehow come across as being more diabolical and maniacal while singing a birthday song and eating a birthday cake. Freaking awesome. Which is what I loved about that type of thing. But you're right. I did not see... I did, Nobody saw the comedic... Uh, Especially Mankind. He's, yeah. He's, he's in a dungeon. He's got a rat on him. Not the good kind. And <laughs> it, it, it's... Uh, it just feels like there's no way this would ever have a comedic streak. It's right. so dark. Yeah. And, well, anyway, here it comes. I, I wanted to ask, though, because the reason we brought up the, the style of match, I know, you know, that you've already got the deal and they know what you're doing and they're invested. But bef- I think before you have the match is when Cornette tells you Vince didn't like the promos. Yeah. This has to be in your head now. Here I am with no sleep, with a gimmick I don't love, that I'm trying to make the best of. I'm trying my best to make chicken salad. I've just let a rat crawl all over me and poured my heart into it. They're telling me it's not good. And now go wrestle yeah. in a different size ring with different ropes and, and, and a different canvas. And uh, this has to be a very stressful day, not very enjoyable. It is a stressful day. And I think I have uh, foregone, uh, I've seen the Whataburger in Corpus Christi, and it's not in my best interest to eat this. So that shows you my level of dedication to that show. I did find out uh, Vince wasn't a big fan, did not have the sleep. Uh, and again, I, I had to convince myself on the plane that I belong there. Uh, but now I'm as a different character, and everybody in that dressing room seen people come and go. So I came in. Uh, right after Santa Claus had left. Yep. Uh, so, so this is where they were on that map, you know, with the Aldo Montoya's and Santa Claus, the evil Santa, uh, which I would disagree on just based on principle. Yeah, you don't have an evil Santa character. Don't don't do that to your yeah. friends. Um, and I wasn't sure what the future held for me. And I did come out. You know, I mean, there was enough encouragement where I thought it went well. I was trying out a few different moves in there, but things I thought would work with the character. But for the life of me, I still didn't see why I wasn't Cactus Jack. Was Pat there? Did he give you feedback? I don't remember Pat giving me feedback. What about Vince? At what that did he time, think? I don't don't recall. Okay. I wish I could tell you. So you did wind up working uh, in Memphis for a short time against Jerry Lawler before you know that WrestleMania. Yeah. I'm just curious, how does that come about? Do you think I need to work in the lifts more? I want to work on the gimmick more? Or is this a WWE idea? Go. This is WWE had a talent sharing agreement. Yeah. And uh, by and large, Jerry was getting people who either hadn't, <laughs> who had had their run. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember Brian Christopher going out and cutting a promo about the guy he was bringing in next week. And oh, he's a big guy and he's got a, he's got a dental chair. So they were bringing in Isaac Yankum, mm-hmm. right? And this is, so he, they're not getting the best that WWE has to offer, but they're also getting people who are working on new stuff. So and, and green guys like The Rock, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they were yeah, yeah guys. Yeah, this is a, yeah. They were getting Kurt their Angle. experience yeah. there. I was coming in just to get some working experience, and Lawler sold it like I, he was in a fight for his life, which was great. The net, and then that night you'd work Saturday morning TV in Memphis. Then you go to the Nashville Fairgrounds. 
to work your pick anything up from Lawler. Lawler is such a master of the craft, uh, underappreciated. Oh, yeah, sells everything so well, so you're not necessarily having to do as much. And it was a short match, maybe seven, eight minutes, so I wasn't going to be up there with the best stuff that Lawler's ever done. But I think the line I used, of all the things I've lost, I think I've missed my mind the most, which may have been a corny line. Corny may have given that to me. And it was that. then that night I'm working as a babyface with Brian Christopher as my partner. And I can't remember who we're working with. But as we're going, uh, now uh, Brian's looking for the tag. And I start, you know, getting caught up in what else is going on. And now the crowd's starting to plead with me to come in there. And now instead of it being uh, a mistake I'm making because of the absence of mind, now I'm consciously choosing not to be there. So I'm finding ways for this character. I'm seeing potential for this character to work based on the fact that he can be further out there than Cactus ever was. Uh, and, I, and it's not running through my mind that I have to find nuances to work with the bigger, because it's going to be a character that does a lot of yelling, and then he's going to come down in decibel. He's almost going to whisper. Um, but it was still very much a work in progress, you know, when I got in there to do my first, not only my first match, with The Undertaker, but even uh, a couple months in when I do my first pay-per-view, still a work in progress. And I can't tell you how indebted I am to him for, uh, you know, believing in me to that point where he thought a loss at our first pay-per-view match was going to do more for him in the long run uh, than winning that match would be. And it was. You know, I think my record against Undertaker was maybe 2-98. and 98. I'm guessing we had about 100 yeah. matches. I know I only won two of them, but they were the ones that counted. It was that that uh, June in my first pay-per-view match, and then it was uh, the uh, Boiler Room Brawl. SummerSlam, SummerSlam yeah. in August, yeah. So the night after WrestleMania, you're finally going to make your big television debut. Monday Night Raw is still, you know, the show. Yeah. Uh, just to add context, the NWO is not a thing yet. So there is a Nitro, but the NWO is going to debut the next month. Yeah. And Brett's out of here now. He's going to take a little bit of a leave of absence. Sean is the new champ. And this is before the night after WrestleMania became the super show right. that it is now. Right. And when you come out to take on Bob Holly, there's really no reaction, uh, especially compared to the big reactions you would have in the future. Do you think fans were, you know, you go back and you look at the undertaker's debut and little kids were scared. Yeah, sure. Uh, they didn't know what to think. They just knew they'd never seen anything like this before. Do you think there was quote unquote heat? They knew you were a bad guy. They're feeling it out. They're not too sure. Is it Cactus Jack? Is it not? How did it feel to you come into the ring as, as far as your reception? You know, to this day, I still have differences of opinion with people who think the heels main job is to get heat. I've right. always believed in interest. Hmm. And that's why we see like you're looking around your uh, room here. You got uh, uh warrior and, Hogan babyface match. So mm -hmm. we've got a lot of uh, great babyface matches that have main evented, uh, not only WrestleMania, but all kinds of uh, pay-per-view main, main events or uh, 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 house show main events, babyface on babyface, even heel on heel, uh, because they've created the interest. So I all I realized that when I went out and I was doing independence, there was a guy dressed as a uh, like a Pink Panther 
doing a gay gimmick in West Virginia. And of course that's going to get heat. Of course. And so conceivably I could have been the guy in the Pink Panther outfit doing a gay gimmick, which was, you know, that was a heat-getting gimmick in 2022. Uh, but I didn't think it was heat. I thought, I, you know, that was a certain type of heat, but I thought that interest trumps heat. Oh, for sure. So I wasn't, I was not as worried about what I, I didn't perceive it as a lack of heat because I felt like people were interested. And then the, within a, an hour coming out of the, the crowd, or the crowd or the, the aisle uh, to attack the undertaker uh, created a lot of interest right away. Yeah. So later that night, the main event spot on raw, uh, it's going to have you make, the undertaker look human, you know, you beat the hell out of him and the show ends with that historic elbow off the ring, crashing into the camera, uh, takers in the aisleway. And it's probably one of the most well shot scenes in the history of the company. Did you guys have that shot in mind in walkthroughs that day or all along, or did it just happen? Well, Ke- you know, Kevin was really on board from day one with the camera shots uh, Jackie Crockett had done a great job in WCW of making it look like I was uh, coming down into people's living rooms. And that's what uh, Vince and Kevin Dunn did. Uh, now it's a given that guys will go around, they'll know the big shots, and they'll try to, you know, get, Kevin gets knocked for the, the, a lot of swirls and the cu- quick cuts. And quick cuts. Um, but I'll take the quick cuts over the uh, a minute at a time on the hard camera any day. Um, I, lo- I love the cuts. And then they go back, and when they know something has looked great, then they go back and they show you that other angle. So they're always, they want to limit that groaner that uh, gets in the way of the magic that we create. Um, if someone wants to argue the cuts are too quick, that's fine. But, uh, but they do go down and they get the best camera shots uh, that are possible. And so I... I I don't know if I if if I said it looks great with a low camera or whether they already realized that, but they shot it tremendously. Um, it it looked great. Undertaker sold it like a million bucks. He's foaming at the mouth and uh, DDP. Uh, he he called Eric Bischoff back in the days of the telephone. He said, "Bish, that's going to draw." And I think it was. Apparent WCW that WWE was on to something because immediately WCW started showing videos with Cactus Jack losing to every possible person because I think they realized, uh oh, uh, Bischoff 101. Yeah, this is, uh, we're going to try to cut this guy off uh, at the knees because that's going to work. So you aren't so sure about this character as we head in here, and you've been told that. Um, well, Vince doesn't really like the promos, but man, closing Raw the night after WrestleMania with such an iconic shot on such a big talent in The Undertaker, when that night's over, you mentioned that you called your wife, you had to feel at least a lot better. I did. Yeah. I did. I hated the mask. I want, I was hoping what we did was strong enough that I could uh, segue it into a Cactus Jack run. But I realized that what we had done was pretty substantial. And now, to make this relevant to the people watching the the new, you know, the newer product, uh, I wonder what would happen to me if, in eleven and a half years into my career, if instead of coming out and jumping the Undertaker in my first match, if I'd been sent to developmental for three years, 
um, I think it would have sh- shattered my confidence and uh, made me uh, the same. Yeah, much more similar to everyone else so that I wouldn't have stood out the same way that uh, in WWE, you know, the, the heyday when they were picking the best guys from each territory. Everyone was different. Jake came in, he had his own style. Randy Savage had his own style. Everyone was different. You know, Snuka had worked uh, at Portland, Japan, the Carolina. Like, everyone had their own thing. And now you put us all into like a... A beautiful assembly line, but it's, but like it's a factory. Ass- yeah, it's a factory where you're encouraged to learn their playbook, and I think you lose a little bit of the uh, uniqueness that makes wrestling so great, and also you mess with. I just think when it's been proven that you could take AJ Styles and premier him at Royal Rumble, the idea of putting seasoned veterans in developmental can be detrimental to. To their career, to yeah. the company, to yeah. the business. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad we got to hear about the birth of mankind here today. Did we miss anything? Did we uncover it well, all? I, well, you know, mankind is going to have a – he has a historic run, and we're lucky that a lot of these uh, events coincide with the 25th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, so I look forward to discussing some more of these. But I think as far as the origin of mankind – uh, what we were battling against, as far as Mr. McMahon's initial perception, I think we uh, I think we covered that pretty fully. Well, I think uh, the only thing left to do is to see uh, hypothetically. This time of the show, we always do a cameo. Do you think oh. somebody wants to hear from mankind? Let me today? see. I, I specifically uh, I left a couple of these uh, open. I don't have the mankind mask though. That's the unfortunate thing. We well, talked about man save for more. All right. right, and now we will. Uh, let me see what we have and see if we can record a little something. I'm down to dude today. I know we did dude last time, uh, but also the mankind mask is in disarray because it's barely holding on. It's uh, oh, the, the chin piece is gone. All the straps are gone. It's just basically me like fitting it on my head. Uh, so let's see what we have here. And by the way, you can book Mick to do a cameo at cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Uh, and if you do it on the website uh, as opposed to the app, that's better for Mick. So. It is. A, uh, yeah, the, so here's a guy, uh, me, Willie Johnson. Willie's his birthday, longtime wrestling fan, his 30th birthday today. Oh, okay. Wow. So, all right, let's, uh, let's give Willie a little something here. Go into my bag of tricks. We're going all out, boys and girls. Check it out. Cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. <laughs> the ultimate birthday gift for the wrestling fan in your life. <laughs> Let's give it a try. All right. Hello there, Willie Johnson. Willie, this is a hardcore legend, and in uh, interest of full disclosure, I am on the set of my new uh, podcast, Second Week. Uh, Conrad Thompson and I are doing Foley is Pod, so I hope you don't mind uh, that this uh, may become uh, a beloved uh, part of the show. This is only the second week. We are. Uh, I, I, I pitched Conrad the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be great if... I did a cameo video every week, uh, and people look forward to it. So I hope you don't feel like we're filtering down your birthday by sharing it with many. Uh, it was Lee Keller who gave me the word. 
uh, that I was one of your favorite all-time wrestlers. I think that's code word for uh, they couldn't find Rock or Austin on here. So they settled for me, and I'm okay with that, just as long as I'm in that top 25, right? Just as long as I can put a smile on your face. That's what it's all about. I'm ta- not talking about a fleeting smile either, Willie. I'm talking more about one that sticks around for a little while. And I thought to celebrate uh, your birthday, I would bring in none other than the hippest cat in all the land. You might remember him. He is... <laughs> Daddy. He is Dude Love, the man who captured tag team gold with Texas's own homegrown chrome dome, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And the dude has put pen to paper and come up with a song just for you. And it goes like this. Have a holly jolly birthday. It's the best time of the year. Have no fear. The dude is here, all your blues are gonna disappear. Have a holly jolly birthday, but please don't you be rude. Say hello to those friends you know, though they're not as cool as the dude. But who is? Whoa, ho, this video I sent to you from me. Lee must really care about you, paid foley's. Staggering fee, I saw the bill. Have a holly jolly birthday, in case you did not hear. Oh, by golly, have a holly jolly birthday this year. Oh, my goodness, dude, love uh, just rocking it for us. Incre- that was incredible. I see uh, Conrad has tears streaming down his face. <laughs> yeah, this has just it's been a very emotional moment. I can't thank you enough, Willie, for being a fan of mine. I hope this is a great birthday, the big 3-0. And thank you, Lee, for thinking of me as a way to make this day nice. There we go. Well, how cool is that, man? It doesn't get better than that, right? No, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, I love doing it. So, again, uh, I'm just going to go back to the little emo- you know, emotional message that everyone I think can relate to. Uh, I love doing these things, and uh, it's a uh, man. It doesn't matter. If my audience is one. You know, I'm going to give you the best I can, um, and that's something I think we all should be doing. Whether or not we uh, are have a WrestleMania to have a moment in, we are nonetheless capable of picking out our own WrestleMania moments in life. So, go out there and find yours. Uh, amen to that. Uh, check it out if you want to do one of those. And, man, how fun is this? It's cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. And, Mick, episode two, in the bag, Foley is pod. How are you feeling about being a podcaster now? Feeling great, man. Feeling great. Uh, the uh, uh, feedback we got after week one was so positive. Yeah. So uh, I think I think uh, we're going to – I really enjoy it. I appreciate your faith in me. Oh, man. And for yeah. everyone who's tuning in, I know there's no shortage of entertainment options out there. Uh, this isn't a case where there's uh, you know four channels, including uh, UHF. Like There's a lot of TV to watch, a lot of things you can pull up on YouTube. So for every single one of you who made the choice to uh, listen to us, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for clicking subscribe. Thanks for telling your friends. And thanks for tuning in next week. Make next week, I think we're going to talk about your very first WrestleMania. How about that? Let's do it. We'll see you next week right here on Foley's Pod.